I need to know everything Who in the what and the where I need everything Trust me, I hear what you're saying But I like it's new what you're telling me I'm curious, George, I hop in the Porsche There's five and a horse, I'm ready for war I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost I need to know everything Now you be surprised at the Hello and welcome to JK Plus One I am your host, Jonathan Kinch And I am not uh, with you from the Brooklyn Bunker I'm not PTF Although there is a fun PTF story in here about him being naughty. It's uh, <laughs> it's actually a really funny story about Pete uh, being a little bit on the muscle and uh, being a little bit uh, aggressive at a Hall of Famer's house, uh, nonetheless. So you'll, you'll get to that a little bit with our guest. Uh, exciting week, right? Uh, this is my 10th episode. How about that? 10th episode. So... Um, uh, I've got nine in the books right now. I'm really proud of all of those. And if you haven't had a chance to check those out, I encourage you to uh, check those out. Remember, subscribe, a uh, little purple thing, Apple Podcasts. That's, that's like 95% of the people that listen. That's how they consume it. So I'm just assuming that's the easiest way. You can always go to our our uh, inthemoneypodcast.com and in that blog situation. We're going to get that uh, site up, updated quickly. That was what we threw together when we parted from the uh, place of the letters. And so uh, it's, it's, I think it's run its course now. So we're in the process of getting that, getting that popping. Um, big week, big week. It's Monday night right now when I'm recording this, I'm going to release this first thing in the morning. So uh, hopefully everyone will be up early checking out Royal Ascot. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, got a little zoom together with uh, a couple of the boys that uh, we hung out with last year for Royal Ascot. And uh, it's fun. It's fun kind of betting something you don't know <laughs> exactly what's going on, but you can still kind of apply some of the same principles. So I'm looking forward to Ascot. And then, of course, it's uh, it's Belmont week. And uh, it's not the same Belmont. It's a little bit different, but it'll still be fun. Excited to see Tis the Law. Excited to see uh, get the little Woody Stevens, a little Acorn action. Uh, I don't know. Some of the other races moved, but I, I know at least those will be there. Um, and, uh, yeah, Stronic five this week, we started our new Lone Star stuff. Uh, make sure you support them if you don't mind, um, we're giving out the early doubles, uh, every day, just kind of get people going at Lone Star and, and hopefully they'll stick around and, and continue to play. And man, we're, we're full meal deal. Summer's upon us. It feels like Saratoga's right around the corner, but we still got some, some more fun things to get accomplished at, uh, at Belmont. Um, what else? Any more housekeeping? I'm trying to think of anything. Uh, no, I think I'm good. My guest today is someone, and I talk about it at the beginning of the show, of someone that I've affectionately referred to uh, as my racing wife. Uh, I felt like I, I uh, we, we shared hotel rooms uh, all the way through my 2015 NHC tour situation. And uh, this, this guy, he, he, he's great when he's in a hotel room, he hangs up his clothes after he wears them every time. So he gets there, hangs everything up. And then when he comes home from dinner, it could be a dirty shirt that he's going to just obviously have to wash when he gets home, but he still, he hangs it up and puts it up. And he travels with uh, like flip-flops, you know, like the ones you wear, like in the shower, like at, you know, at a gym, so you don't get athletes, but he wears those around the hotel room and basketball shorts. That's his, uh, that's his outfit when he's at hotels, but he's great. Um, one of my best friends in, 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 in the world and in racing and, and uh, a fellow Texas bred, although he qualifies for New York bred steaks because both of his parents are, are uh, New York bred. Dad, New York bred. Mom, New York bred. So I think he still qualifies because you know, he's got a New York bred sire. But 
Good friend of mine, uh, one of the greatest uh, handicappers and horse players I know, a phenomenal, phenomenal better. Uh, some of the things that he does when we talk about his exploits and, and betting uh, betting contests. Um, he's got a phenomenal opinion. He uh, really does the work to seize races the right way. Um, he's like an encyclopedia. There's a couple of times in this episode, I just throw random questions at him and he's just like rambling off dates. I'm always so impressed by this person's uh, ability to, uh, to run those thoughts together. But uh, uh, I'm very, very excited to have my good friend, Nick Tamaro on the show. I refer to him uh, as Nikki, the boss, uh, the boss man. Um, he's a, uh, he's a big fan of the Sopranos. So uh, if you ever see him in public and you want to talk to him about a Sopranos episode, he'll tell you the name of the episode and he'll quote like 17 things from it. But I'm really excited to have Nick on. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about his exploits. We're going to talk about uh, racing, uh, uh, his fun experiences at the track and um, some of his big scores and and his job now as a public handicapper and a, a buyer speed figure team and uh, whatever else we kind of get into. So uh, without any more wasted time of me rambling on about nothing, Nikki the Boss, one of my favorite nicknames in the game. What's going on? Not much, my man. How are you? I'm good. I, I feel like I haven't talked to you in a long time. I, I was thinking when I was getting ready for the show, I was remembering when uh, my my 2015 NHC tour speech, I remember that uh, that I referred to you as my racing wife. Uh, during my, during my, uh, acceptance speech. So it's, uh, it's been a while. We haven't got to go anywhere together in quite some time. I know it's not any, not the same. I think the only time we've, we've even been in the same place, maybe other than NHC or Breeders' Cup for contests has been Delmar the last couple of years, which we won't have that to worry about, unfortunately, in 2020. And just another, another casualty of this, uh, this great year we're dealing with. Right. I think the, I think the last time, we we uh we were roommates was last year's Belmont when I flew in I was in Louisville for for uh, the Fox show and then I flew up to up to uh to New York for for Friday racing Belmont weekend and then that morning I had to leave to go to my sister's wedding but I think you let me crash on the couch at that that hotel we always stay at uh what which which one is that the Homewood the uh yeah Philly Philly Joe and I are frequent uh we missed it one year. We we couldn't. I couldn't get a room at the Homewood Suites. I'm a, I'm a Hilton guy, so I always booked the room, and they didn't have anything. So we ended up at a Hampton Inn over off of the Jericho Turnpike, which wasn't the same. The whole thing like gives you this like Amityville type horror film film feel that side of Long Island. But uh, Homewood works out well. We got that two bedroom thing, and I'll tell you, I, the, probably the saddest I've been during quarantine racing wise was the morning I got the email from Hilton reminding me to check into. The Homewood Suites, I guess the Wednesday, Wednesday, actually the day that, that the Belmont meet started. And I don't know, I think I was sad because I wasn't going on the trip. I was also sad because it made me think that I was going to get charged a night for having not canceled early enough. But <laughs> luckily I didn't. I called and I begged and asked for mercy and forgiveness. And they told me that because of COVID, they would give me a break. But I think I was definitely sadder that I wasn't going on the trip, which this would have been my, gosh, I think ninth straight Belmont every every year since twelve. So, and and I only missed 11 and 09 going back to 08. So yeah, the Belmont's a regular for me. I'm glad it's happening, but I certainly wish I was there. It's funny. Like I've actually gone to quite a bit of Belmont's myself. Like I, I was, uh, I was thinking, you know, I don't know if you've seen, but I have like the, the three pictures in the background for the Fox shows. And so I ordered a bunch of pictures so that I could kind of change them out. 
and I ordered, um, I ordered some for, for this week. Um, just, and I wanted them to be all Belmont horses. So I got palace malice, which is the Belmont. I took my dad to the only Belmont my dad went to him and I went, um, I got palace malice. I got justify an American Pharaoh, but I was going to trade in one of those triple crown winners for my boy Drosselmeyer, but I couldn't find a good enough picture, like high enough, high enough quality of, of Drosselmeyer to put that one up there. That one's obviously a special ones, but um, it's a fun race, man, whether it's a triple crown or not. I just like going to New York in, in general. I think even Windstar would tell you to put Justify on there instead of Drosselmeyer. Right. <laughs> I kid. It is a super fun race. And I'll tell you, it's since 2014. I mean, it's a, it's a great card. Um, and the, you know, the racing is just incredible from top to bottom. So you think about the, you know, the acorn, the Woody Stevens, Woody Stevens, like the one race I've gotten right every year. I should just bet one race a year, but, um, the Met and the Manhattan and, you know, it's just a, it's a, it's, it's incredible. And, and the other thing too, that you've participated in is that we've, uh, we've kind of set our dinner schedule every week. And one of the things we've done year in and year out is go to Peter Luger the night before the Belmont. And that would have been, the. Uh, We'll see 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. So that, that's kind of our old school kind of uh, gesture that, that we do. And you've like, been to a few of them. And that's a great dinner. It's just a really fun, really fun night and a really fun trip. And um, I'm already looking forward to the 2021 version. So it's actually on my list of, of the to talk about the Woody Stevens because I, I, I you are the king of the Woody Stevens. What Why do you think you have such an edge in the Woody Stevens? And I know we haven't drawn yet but I'm sure you have your eyes on some horses that are probably named as probables that are going to be cutting back that you're excited about. Yeah. So the, the Woody Stevens is just a race that fits. It's, it seems like year in and year out, it fits what I'm trying to do um, from a handicapping perspective very frequently. And, and one of the things that is fun about the triple crown season and the lead up to the Derby is that uh, it, it ends up making a lot of connections disillusioned about what kind of horse they have. And the good thing is the, the Woody comes at a time where, everybody's kind of realized they've, they've capitulated if they don't have a horse that wants to go long. And I remember I got some really funny looks in 2016 when people asked me who I liked in the Woody Stevens. And I said, Tom's ready. And it was Tom's ready. It was Tom's ready. It was like, Tom's ready is a, is a cutting back son of a gun. I mean, he is, he is a horse that needs to be shortened up. And, you know, I probably didn't realize at the time just how much of an advantage it is usually to have Joel Rosario on a deep one run closing horse. And, um, and it just so happened that that year, and really many, most years, the Woody Stevens has a packed gate. This year might be an exception, obviously, with the, the calendar not being as situated the same way. But it's got a packed gate. It usually has a really fast pace. And um, and that sets up for horses that are going to be coming from off of it. So, yeah, in Tom's Reddy's year, I had the, uh, and I've played in the Belmont Stakes Challenge all these years. But I had, I think, $5 on the try. And that year and the next year had a, a big exact of American Anthem over Giuseppe the Great and thought that he was kind of a, a live long shot. And then in 2018, I bet the rest of my money on still having fun and had $100 on the exact. Uh, I think I had 800 to win. And uh, last year had $5 on the try because I keyed Baracho. I actually just bet well. I don't think my opinion was all that great last year. I just kind of bet smartly, which usually it's the opposite way. But uh, And then in 2013, I made a big bet on 40 Tails. Obviously, wasn't in the contest. 2014, I liked Bayern. The only thing I didn't do well was when uh, was when Cinco Charlie won in 2015. And looking back on it, I didn't really have any kind of good opinion. So it's 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 the one race. Everybody's got that one race, I think, but it's the one race I seem to to have a clue on. The other, you know, the other 2,000 that I bet on every year, it's it's you know taking a shot. So you you um, I think that you kind of you're you're kind of uh, I don't know, your notoriety, your your public kind of. Uh, persona grew 
through I think through through probably through Steve Bick, I would guess, and also through Saratoga Betts, where where um man, I used to lean on you hard. And in fact, I even pull up your uh I pull up now as I'm I have no problem admitting it, and I know you wouldn't care if I plagiarized. I pull up your thing, your your write-up that you do now for Steve Bick. I pull it up and I just have it up during the show. Just in case Andy hits me with some crazy stat and I need I just like I just it's just like a comforting blanket to have sitting there knowing that uh, there might be some random fact that you have there for me. What, when, when did you start Bick? Was that before, after Saratoga bets? And, 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 uh, and tell me about those two experiences. <laughs> You've got your little, your little Andy stopper. But <laughs> that's everybody, everybody who works with him needs it, but he would, he would like that. Um, so going back to probably 2007, I was doing some work for Travis Stone, our, our mutual friend and, and JK Plus One guest from a few weeks ago, who had a website called The Racing Dispatch. And what he was, it was a it was a news aggregator, basically. And so Pat Cummings and Travis Stone and I worked on it. We took stories from around cyberspace racing related and put them on there. And we developed some original content. And, you know, one thing that Travis was adamant about from the beginning was he said, you know, I'm not looking to turn this into a handicapping site. I want to keep it very simple. And so I said to him, well, what if we just do a little bit of handicapping? And finally, he he gave in. And, and so I, I came up with a little column that I referred to as the horse du jour. And so I would give out one horse. And it was usually just at the boutique meets. And, you know, similar to a pick of the day or best bet, whatever you want to call it. But my deal was that it, the horse couldn't go off. The morning line couldn't be less than four to one. So it needed to be a live long shot. Well, long story short, the first eight days at Saratoga in the 2007 meet, my horse du jour won six times. And so I get an email from a guy that says that, that puts in it. Cause I used to put my email address at the bottom of it and say, you know, if inquiries contact me. And if you want to tell me that I'm an idiot, that's great too. So I get a, I get an email from a guy and he says, you know, I really love to talk to you about handicapping from my website. I love that you can write and, and make picks and so on and so forth. Your opinion's really good, blah, blah, blah. So I figured it was nonsense. Well, it turns out it was John Signer, who's the president of capital OTB. And so he and I made an agreement that in January of that following year, I was going to start doing daily analysis, basically in the style of like Dave Litfin and, and Brad Free and all the, the daily racing form guys. And so I started working for him, for them there in January of 2008. I started going on Steve's show regularly in December of 2009. And I had been going on Steve's message board, derbytrail.com for a while, and was really just a, you know, a, a young guy that liked racing that wanted more people to talk racing with. And, you know, Twitter wasn't really around and wasn't popular. And, you know, the great thing about message boards is that you've got people that can just be like, you know, no holds barred, just complete assholes, if I can say that on here, and and get away with it, you know, and, and just with impunity. And I'm somebody who, I mean, all things considered is a relatively nice guy. There's probably a few people out there that might disagree. But I, so I used to, it, it helped me, it helped me, I think, sort of thicken my skin when it came to my opinions on racing. And, um, and it helped me actually encounter a lot of people that really knew what they were talking about, you know, and there were, there were a lot of people on that message board and uh, Delmar had a Delmar fan forum at that point. And I met a lot of people through that. Um, actually Pat Cummings was on there quite a bit too. So we, we, we uh, met people doing that. And these are people that we ended up going to the track with, we ended up hanging out with um, sometimes outside the track. So that, that was basically to sum it all up. That was how that happened. And, and with Steve, what I was going to do was go on on Fridays. This is when Steve's show was in the afternoon. I was going to go on on Fridays and talk about 
racing at some of the more unheralded spots. So, for example, I'd go on and talk about you know, Texas Champions Day at Sam Houston or Louisiana Champions Day at or fairgrounds or, you know, a good card at Tampa or something. Cause Steve didn't, he didn't always have the time to cover all of those different places. And, and now as time has gone by, his show has just the scope of it. And, and the, the guests have really grown immensely and, uh, and it's terrific. And so it, it, it that's how it, uh, that's how it all got going. And Saratoga bets was where I migrated to. I was with Capital OTB from 2008 until 2011. And the guy who was in charge of their internet platform is a guy named Alex Savage, who I was very friendly with. Alex moved to Saratoga Bets. I switched jobs in my personal life. And so I wanted to take a little break from handicapping. So I did. And then in January of 2012, I started again and did that uh, nonstop until September of 2016. And here I find myself doing some public handicapping again, which I, I had forgotten in the four, almost four years that I didn't do it, that I really enjoy it. I, I really, I really do enjoy looking at the races that in depth and, and it gives you an appreciation for how much time and energy and effort you're putting into it and, and what you can potentially get out of it. It's funny, your, your time on Bic and, and I, I've told this, I mean, I think people that know us know this story, but. Nick and I both are obviously from Texas, Nick from Houston, and I'm from the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And um, I used to hear Nick on BIC all the time. And, you know, there's a lot of – there's a, I love BIC show, and, and there's a lot of people on BIC that I, I, I like them, but I don't necessarily care what they say in terms of racing. But I just remember you used to, you know, listen to Nick all the time, and I was like, wow, this is so cool. And 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 because uh, he sounded like he was around my age and blah, blah, blah. Well – Funny enough, one of my best friends uh, that I, and also my my business partner here in, in Texas that I went to college with, he was into racing. We went to the, you know, we started going to the Derby together and started kind of like, you know, fell in love with racing around the same time. He tells me one day, we're listening to Bick and he's like, you know, I know that guy. And I was like, how do you know him? He's like, I went to high school with him. There's like 50 kids in our class. And he was like in my high school. I was like, you know him, know him? He's like, yeah. I was like, dude, you got to like hit him up on Facebook or something. Like, I thought you were like, I thought like, I, I thought Robert was going to like hit you up. We were to get tickets to the Derby. I thought you were in, you know, I thought, I thought like you had the whole, I thought you had the whole hookup. And uh, so I tell Robert to, to hit you up and you know, Robert and everyone who, everyone who's listening that knows Robert knows that Robert didn't hit you up. So then, um, but, but it was because of Bic that I was even aware of, of who you were. And then we'll get to where, when we actually, the first time we hung out, which was at your Epic Breeders Cup, uh, betting challenge run, but we'll, uh, we'll get to that in a second. Um, how, do, you know, I think that, and I, I had the plan to talk about somebody, uh, at the very beginning of the show, but we ended up getting sidetracked, but that's okay. And I think that this person is probably the most important person in this conversation because without him, none of this would really be. But uh, tell me a little bit about uh, the famous Pat Tamaro and how he how he introduced you to this game that you love so much. Oh yeah, I mean it wouldn't wouldn't have been everybody in racing. It seems like is either either a rogue that took it on themselves or had some family member that brought them to the track or got them to to get involved in it. And my father is absolutely who did it for me. My, my father is a, is a quintessential New Yorker, um, relocated to Houston a year before I was born. And we've lived in Texas my entire life. But, you know, my, you would think my parents just left Marine Park if you talk to them. And uh, so he, you know, he was, he was astonished. He, he always tells me moving down here in the late seventies that there were no racetracks. You know, you think like Texas is, you know, just the country, everybody's got a farm and there's got to be racetracks everywhere. So, we, when I was, when I was very, very young, obviously I don't, I don't remember this, but 
they used to drive, he and my, one of my, two of my uncles used to drive to Delta Downs. I think they made a day trip to Louisiana Downs one time, which is a, it's a pretty ballsy day trip from Houston uh, to see the Preakness. And then we moved to the, to the Dallas Fort Worth area in 88, 89. And there was a prospect at that point of a racetrack being built. So by the time 91 rolled around, I was sitting with my father one afternoon and he said to me, I was seven years old at the time. And he said to me, do you want to go to the racetrack? And I mean, he could have said, do you want to go to wherever? And I was just, I was going to do it. I didn't really know any better. And so what he had done was he had arranged for us to go from, we were flying on Southwest from Dallas to Houston and Houston to New Orleans. And in Houston, a guy that he worked with and his wife were going to get on the plane. And we all rode to New Orleans to go to the fairgrounds. So we get on the plane really, really early in the day. We ride it down. George and Elizabeth get on. Then we ride to, to New Orleans. And you know, we're driving through the French Quarter because we got there very early. And they tell the, the driver that they hired, you know, take the kid through the French Quarter so we can see things. And so, I mean, I see signs like, Dad, you know, I asked my father, I said, Dad, what, what does topless and bottomless mean? And he's like, don't worry about that. And don't tell your mother that you saw that sign. So we go to the fairgrounds. And I remember this, you know, this majestic grandstand, a big a kind of old fashioned looking place. Now, of course, this was pre-fire fairgrounds. So it was a really, really cool spot. We got a box and, um, and had a really fun day. And so as the day went on, I kept asking him, you know, what do you, how do you, what is that? What is that racing form? He told me this is a racing form. It's got all the information and I became very intrigued by it. I wanted to look at it and I kind of wanted to figure it out. And I was a kid that liked puzzles. I liked to read, you know, I, I, I seemed to like challenges to some extent but if it was something i obviously had a little bit of a gambler spirit in me so that all was was kind of piqued by that well it was a day trip so we, we made our way back to to dallas and and we're driving home and i said when are we gonna go to the racetrack again and he said well the racetrack here is going to open in may so we were there on i believe it was the second day trinity meadows was open and that was that was really how i got started was we started going uh, to Trinity Meadows, which was a six furlong dirt only track, had a six furlong chute so that it could be run around one turn. They, I mean, all, almost every race was run at, at either six furlongs or a mile. Uh, it was always, almost always mixed meets. So we, we handicapped quarter horses, Arabians, a lot of cheap, cheap racing, claiming basement was 2,500, but um, it was a great way to learn, you know, was, and there were an amazing number of very, very astute horse players there and very sharp, sharp guys and, and women as well that uh, primarily had moved to, to the Dallas area. You know, both of us as Texans know that a lot of people make their way down here. I mean, like Davy Crockett said, you can all go to hell, I'm going to Texas. But um, you want to make your way down here because it's a good place to live. It's a good place to raise a family. There were a lot of people from the Northeast, from the upper Midwest, from the West Coast that had racing backgrounds. And so invariably, those people always end up getting to the racetrack and they did and, uh, and it ended up being a great learning experience for me, just picking their brain and asking so many questions, probably to the point of annoying all of them. But I just, I, I was a sponge. I wanted to, to pick up as much as I could. And one of my favorite things, uh, uh, I mean, it's not one of my favorite. There's a lot of things that are my favorite, but one of my favorite is, is you're like an encyclopedia of information. I just love hanging out with you because there's certain things that in a normal situation, I would just like Google it. But it, while we're sitting here, I'll just ask you, because I know you know the answer. What, what was the transition transition like? Cause I never went to Trinity Meadows. I think my dad went a few times, but the only racetrack I ever went to was Lone Star. So when did Trinity Meadows close? When did Lone Star open? How did all that unfold? So Trinity opened in May of 91 and, and pretty much ruled the roost in Texas racing for three years. And so the issue that they ran into was that there was a, 
there was a bidding process open for a class one racetrack. Trinity was a class two racetrack, which meant that it had a limit to the number of dates it could run mandated by the Texas Racing Commission. And they wanted a class one license, but they, their application for the class one license was contingent on, on expanding the barn area, expanding the oval to a mile. And the surface was, you know, and there's there are probably people out there who either trained there or raced there or, or remembered a little bit. The surface was, was, a, was not the greatest. And there was, there was a sinkhole on the far turn that was a problem. And I mean, anybody who's familiar with the climate in, in Dallas-Fort Worth knows that you can get a big spring thunderstorm and ruin everything that you've tried to do for months, especially because it, it can come on so strongly and so quickly. So that was what they were trying to do. Well, at the same time, a couple of groups were bidding to open a new racetrack in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. At the same time, Sam Houston was was ready to open down here. So uh, Trinity Meadows lasted until '96. In 96, Lone Star had been awarded the license, and they opened up their simulcast facility in 96 to try and accumulate purse money for when they were going to open in 97, which was actually very brilliant business-wise. And they learned the lessons from both Rotama and Sam Houston, each of, who, of those two racetracks each opened and were in bankruptcy a year later. So the expectations were just way, way, way too high. And, um, and they ended up not making enough money. So what Lone Star wanted to do was have some some purse money reserved. So, I mean, immediately Lone Star opened with a significantly higher purse structure than we had ever seen in Texas racing. And at that point in time, because Trinity Meadows was, it's gotta be 30 miles west of, of Lone Star, if not more, it was, it was every bit of 40 miles from downtown Dallas um, in a little city called Willow Park, which was about 15 miles west of Fort Worth. So, I mean, it was a long way away and nobody was going to, nobody who lived in Dallas or that area was going to drive past Lone Star even if it meant that they need that they could see live racing, so that was when it it uh, folded, and there was talk over time of them reopening. It got purchased a couple of times. Uh, they applied for a class two license, which I don't think was ever granted, and eventually it was sold to a developer, and the uh, facility was knocked down in in 2017. So September of 17 was was when it it was gone, and I was actually I had driven by it about a year or so before that. And I was up there for, for my day job and we were going out to Weatherford and we drove by and there it sat, the little two-story grandstand still sitting there looking like it was probably just a, a little TLC, a few coats of paint and maybe some cleaning away from being ready to ready to operate again. That's how I feel when I see, that's how I feel when I see uh, Maynard Downs, you know, that was, uh, that was so much fun, man. Like, and I didn't even, I can only imagine if that was available still now. It was so much fun to do, you know when I didn't even know what the heck I was doing when I was in college, I loved doing it. Um, and I know you've had some fun there. You called a race there, didn't you? I called, I called a weekend of racing there. Yeah, it was, uh, it was Pat Cummings was the voice of Maynard Downs at that point in time. And he was off to Dubai for the world cup in 2010. And he said, he said, come by, uh, come by Maynard the weekend before and let me introduce you to Howard. And, and he, he'll, he'll let me know if he's okay with you calling the races. Well, of course I show up in, in Austin, I get up to Maynard and I, I go meet Howard. I mean, and, and I, there was no screening process whatsoever. So Howard was like, okay, yeah, you've been to the track before. Yeah. All right, good. You can call the races next weekend. So simple as that. And I got, I got $250 for my trip and $250 a day to call the races. So, I mean, it was all in all, it was pretty, pretty lucrative trip, pretty fun, pretty fun time. And, and I, I mean, they were, they were a really involved crowd with, you know, the handle all things considered, they they did about 120,000 the Saturday I was there all on track. And, uh, I mean, that was with, I don't know, 1500 people in attendance, 2000 people. There was a real, 
there was a real passion for it. Obviously, people in the Hispanic community are big into quarter horse racing. So the quarter horse pools were way bigger than the thoroughbred pools. But uh, it was a fun spot. I, I really Sam Houston owns the racing license. They don't own the facility, but they own the racing license. So if there's ever going to be racing there again, it would be it would be Sam Houston's doing. So fingers crossed. Yeah, you know, it's funny. You're, you're right about the Hispanic community. That's actually where I learned how to uh, smooch at a horse. There was a guy there that, you know, he had his Sunday gear on. I, we were having $2 Dos Equis. They used to have $2 Dos Equis all the time. We were in college. And he had his cowboy hat on, his boots and his jeans. And, he's, you know, he was dressed up. And uh, I, I'll never forget him smooching at this horse saying, come on, number two. Come on, number two. And then I, I, I like, I, they like picked it up from that guy at, uh, that made her down. So, um, you, you had another racetrack job that I thought was interesting and I I forget about it sometimes. And I always wonder, cause I used to hang out at Lone Star. I always wonder if I've ever placed a bet with, uh, Nikki, the boss, the teller. Oh yeah. That was a fun job. That was a great, great college job too. Cause it was, it was at night and, you know, I was looking to make a little a little extra money in the spring of my freshman year of college, and I went to school in Irving, which is about 15 minutes from Grand Prairie, and so I went through the process of applying to be a mutual clerk, and, and so I go, and, the, and the, the class, so to speak, was four nights. It was Monday through Thursday from like five to eight, and so, you know, you go, and, and of course, I mean, imagine going to something and literally knowing everything that, that you're being taught perhaps even better than the person teaching you. So they, so I, that, that, that was what it was. And it was three nights of that. And then on the fourth night, they gave you a test, which was based, it consisted of one of the, the mutual clerk supervisors standing there and just calling out bets to you. And they had a, a front and back piece of paper with all the bets on it that they wanted to call out to you. And, and they would, you know, they would try and use like different you know, different nomenclature on things like give me a, give me a a $10 baseball, three, four, six, which you were supposed to know was a box. And, and so this guy called out all the bets on the front first and front and back page. And I had punched all of them and he's like grabbing the tickets as I punch him, checking him. And and he's like, okay, well, I've never had this happen before. I ran out of bets. So you pass. And, and that was, you know, obviously I was supposed to, I was supposed to be good at it. And then, and so my first assignment was, was opening day of the of the uh, spring meet, which which was the only thoroughbred meet at Lone Star, it was a Thursday night, and they always ran the premier stakes as the first race. And we go get our assignment the day before, making sure I have my Lone Star uh, denim shirt on, and uh, my assignment is the fifth floor suites, and I'm pumped. Like I'm thinking, man, this is great. You know, I'm thinking about like my guys in in Houston at the Jockey Club. Like these guys are real players. This is going to be great. I mean, there's going to be so much action. It was horrendous. I mean, it was nothing but – and look, don't get me wrong. We need these kind of people at the racetrack. But it was nothing but people doing like corporate events. I got asked what a show bet cost, you know, what 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 I would bet, you know, all of this stuff. And so I did that for about two weeks and I went down to the, to the mutuals department and I said, you guys got to put me where people bet. And they said, all right, you can move to the simulcast pavilion. So I moved to the simulcast pavilion at that point, worked the rest of the, the meet until I was going home for – the summer. And then the following fall, I reapplied for, uh, for the Breeders' Cup meet. So which Lone Star ran for about a month. I think they ran the month of October. And, and the whole, the whole, you know, goal was obviously work through the Breeders' Cup. And they paid us a, a augmented rate on Breeders' Cup day for Friday and Saturday. And so I, 
I worked, even though there was no, you know, there was no Breeders' Cup Friday back then, but I got assigned a window on the uh, first turn. I mean, for everybody out there that's listening, I mean, Lone Star was, was temporary Seat City. I have to say, though, they did a phenomenal job. I mean, they, the place looked great. It was uh, it was a beautiful day outside, and look at some of the winners that day. I mean, that was one of the best Breeders' Cups from a you know from a, a proven racehorse standpoint, um, and even some of the good horses that ran that day that didn't win. So uh, I worked that, that I worked the hundred dollar window there, which ultimately became no minimum because there just weren't enough people betting. But uh, it was a lot of fun, and and at the end of that day, the 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 teller who was my supervisor was one one window over. And uh, she realized that she had actually worked at Trinity Meadows. And, and so she loved hearing that I used to go there. And, and she realized that I was into racing, probably when she looked over and saw me betting most races. But she realized it was about coming, the classic was coming up. And she said to me, come on, let's go watch the race. You're the only person on this whole line that cares besides me. So we ran upstairs and just stood at the back of somebody's suite and watched the, they were, the field was coming by us for the first time in the classic going into the clubhouse turn and you know ghost zapper just looked like a looked like a steam engine at that point and of course it you know we know what happened from there oh that's awesome I, were you allowed to bet or is that were you just breaking you're not a rule breaker though so i don't what happened there we, we were not i mean it, it wasn't one of those where lone star employees were not permitted to bet um every teller that wanted to bet, you know, that was the thing. So I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a rule breaker when it comes to gambling, I guess, but for the most part, I'm a pretty law abiding citizen, but yeah, I got, uh, I got, I got a little bit of a lecture from, I, I had this guy, there was one supervisor that I had, he used to work Friday nights and I would work Friday nights because uh, obviously the live racing was going on and I had school during the day. And so this guy, Pat was just very surly and there was a supervisor that worked in the middle of the mutual line and then one on the end. And so I walk up to him because I'm in the window next to him. I mean, and he is just firing in bets. And, and I, you know, I didn't say anything to him. I'm not going to say anything. They're like, do your thing. And so he became very nervous that I was like a narc and was going to go turn him in. And so he called me into the thing and he's like, Hey, you know, what I was doing there is, is, is none of anybody else's business. I'm like, you don't need to be worried about me or anybody. Don't pay attention when I do it. And he's like, okay, great. This will work out perfectly. So he was much nicer to me from then on. So yeah, when we needed to, we, we, we got a few bets down. Oh, that's amazing. Um, all right. So you got, you got, we got some fun racetrack stories. Um, Gulfstream 96. Is that, were you with your dad when you went? Yeah, I was with my, my dad had some business that he was, uh, was he had gone down to Miami earlier in the week. And my mom and I flew over on Thursday night and he was like, we're going to go to Gulfstream Saturday. And, you know, I had not gone to, to Gulfstream by that point, I guess I had been to Belmont, Trinity Meadows, Louisiana Downs and Santa Anita. That was it. So he, he said, you know, we're going to go to, we're going to go to Gulfstream. And of course the appeal of it was that we were going to go see Cigar. And, you know, we knew that obviously Cigar was the best horse alive at that point in time. So this was 96. He had, he was going to go run in the Dubai World Cup and the Don was going to be his prep. And so we were in South Florida and, you know, I mean, you, you know me and everybody out there who, who might be surprised by this, especially with how, how, I guess, churlish I am with Gulf Streams. I love South Florida. Like I love South Florida. And 
I love the like the life of it. I like the nightlife. I like the restaurants. I love the Latin flair, whatever. So so we go to dinner at the Cuban place first night. Second night we go to Joe's Stone Crab. Then and I'm like I'm 12 years old. My parents were going around to bars on South Beach, and even though I've always looked older, I didn't quite look 21 at, at 12. But I, you know they they let me walk into the bars, and you know as long as you're with your parents, so on and so forth. Well, next day we go to Gulfstream, and it's a 12 race card. And, you know, I, I didn't realize it at the time because we didn't do, we, we didn't always go to simulcasting. There was no TVG, you know, there was, there was whatever racing you watched was racing that was on TV anyway. And so I didn't realize just how good that day of racing was. It was not a particularly strong Don. Obviously, Cigar was a huge favorite, but uh, there was a, a, a first time starter that won early on the card named Will's Way. And Will's Way six months later won the Travers. And there was a one other then that was won by Skipaway. And we all know what Skipaway went on to do a year, almost two years later, won the Breeders' Cup Classic, including plenty of good races in 96. And then there was a three other then that was won by Jerry. Jerry was Cigar's uh, sort of, uh, I guess you could say, understudy in that he was the second best horse in Bill Mott's barn. And in a way, it was actually Jerry's fault that Cigar lost the Pacific Classic because Jerry had been sent to Hollywood. Jerry Bailey tells this story, and I remember he told it on, on TVG Legends, that he went to Hollywood to ride Jerry in the Hollywood Gold Cup, and he got into a big pace duel. With, or he, he let Siphon get an easy lead, and he went wire to wire. And so he was very worried on Cigar in the Pacific Classic that that was going to happen. And so he went and hooked Siphon. And of course, that ended up setting things up for Darren Go. So all of those horses ran on one card. We just had an unbelievable time. Old Gulfstream, you know, and don't get me wrong. I, I'm a, I, I, I get new Gulfstream. I, I like it a lot more than most people do. Um, it was built for year-round racing. Old Gulfstream was like, there was like kind of a combination of Mammoth and and Santa Anita and Hialeah. It had a great outdoor feel. It was all outdoors because obviously they ran from January through March. So you're always going to run when the weather's nice. And there were a ton of box seats. We got we got tables in this restaurant on the the back, of, of really all the way on the clubhouse turn side of, of it. And you know, my dad was sitting there with this guy he worked with or smoking Cuban cigars and whatever. And uh, it was just great. It was a great day. And, and, and it was one of those where, I mean, I may have been relatively young, but it, it just walking down to watch Cigar in the middle of that run that he was on was like, a, it was my first time really seeing a good horse in person. And I think when that happens, you never forget it. We've had some good times in in uh, in South Florida. It feels like I remember uh, the when I won the uh, uh, Gulfstream contest. We, me, you, your dad, and your mom went to that Three Forks. That was fun. Yeah, um, that was a good one. I, I one of my favorites is is when Mike uh, when Mike used to be on tour with us, Mike Epstein. Oh yeah. And remember that, remember that store? Bike to bike. <laughs> bike to bike. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. That's a fun now, place. I mean, it, 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 and all, the, yeah. all the stuff you can do after the races makes it a lot of fun. And, and it, uh, yes, yeah, love, love South Florida. You talk about your handicapping and, 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 and uh, that's when I knew that you were nuts is you were, when you were doing Saratoga Bets, we were at dinner at Frankie's. We're at dinner after a day at the track. We're at dinner at Frankie's where they got the machines in there. We're probably betting Santa Anita or probably harness racing. Who knows at that point of the night. And you have your laptop out on the table. No one was offended, by the way. Had your laptop out at the table um, working on your uh, on your uh, handicapping analysis. And I was like, dang, boss, you don't ever take a day off. 
And the crazy part is that I probably tortured somebody at a hotel or, or, or somebody that I knew that worked at Gulfstream to get my PPs printed out. So, (laughs) you know, it was one of the fun things about, about going to Saratoga and staying with Andy was that he, he knew that I needed to handicap. And so, I mean, that's, that's an experience all to itself, but um, this thing may blow away past two and a half hours if we get too much into that, but it was always, you know, he would call me and and, and as, as, as angry and and unmotivated as possible say, do you need PPs printed? It's like, yeah, okay. You know, and so he would do it. And so it's easy to do that. But I mean, God only knows how many hotel printers I've wrecked printing out PPs. I'm, I'm green now. So you, you actually helped me get green back in August of 2017. But yeah, it was, that was the thing was Saturday night. You couldn't, if my Sunday analysis was done, I was good. I was good for the, for the weekend. And then I wouldn't bother with the weekday cards until Monday usually. But uh, yeah, if you're a public handicapper and you fall too behind after draw day, you never catch up. It's tough. Yeah, it's tough. How, how did you meet Andy Serling? So, so the message board that I was talking about, and, and even before Derby Trail, there was, a, there was a message board called the New York Racing Board. And it was a, it was a group of people that were regulars at Aqueduct, and you know, they all knew each other. And I think Travis had met some of them when he went down for the 05 Breeders' Cup. And so I was going on that message board periodically, and it was a lot of people that just, they just talked New York racing. I mean, and these were like railbirds at Aqueduct. You know, they were, you did not come in there and, and put a take on that message board that you didn't want just completely picked apart. So you, again, another situation where you kind of learn to thicken your skin a little bit. And, and so it, before the 07 Breeders' Cup, we, Travis and I, were, we were at Mammoth and we went up to Aqueduct for the day and sat with a couple of them. And, and we had a great time. These are guys that I'm still in, in contact with 13 years later. In fact, I was at Sam Houston with one in January, a guy that lives down here in um, in Alvin, home, of course, of Nolan Ryan. And and so anyway, so Andy was a regular on there. And, and, and you know, you and so I had no idea what the significance of his screen name was, which is Black Throated Wind. And realized, of course, that it's a Grateful Dead song. And I forget at times that Andy's like an enormous deadhead. And so in, in, in very typical fashion for him, I get a I get a private message on Derby Trail. And he said, I've been reading what you post. And I find myself disagreeing with it very rarely. And that was all it said. And I realized that that was actually him saying he might have some respect for my opinion. So I, I engage him. And, and it turns out that, and, and so I, you know, I just started asking him questions and, and things like that. And so then I got the job with Capital OTB and he, he was very excited about that. And, and so he said, you know, he said, I'm going to tell you what I was told a long time ago. No freebies. So it was always, you know, he never, he never, it never bothered him. He never minded me asking him about a race, but it was never going to be, Hey, who do you like in the third? If I did, if, if at the end of him saying it, he didn't say, well, who do you like? And I was like, well, well um, you know, I didn't, no, that was not okay. I needed to have somebody that I liked so that we could converse about it. And then really by, by 09 and 2010, I mean, he would call me almost every night and we would, we would do kind of the prep for talking horses in that he would, we would go through the card race by race and, um, and talk about everyone and probably did that more in earnest as, as a little bit more time went by. And then in 2011, my Saratoga plans were totally up in the air. And he said, I was talking to him one night and he said, well, if you need a place to stay, you know, I have, I have a two bedroom. So he had a two bedroom apartment then. And I stayed with him 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. I went up usually for about a week or so. And uh, yeah, it was great. I mean, it's, it's, 
you know, and, and I'm sure you're going to have him on here at some point. You'll, you'll have to, to twist his arm when it's a week where he can give up two and a half hours. And people are going to learn a lot more about Andy, which you, you know, you know more about him than the average person. And, and he's actually a, he's a very, he's an extremely bright, um, extremely driven, extremely hard worker. He's also extremely intense. Right. And so he takes his job very seriously, takes everything he does very seriously. And I think that's sometimes what gives people a bad impression. But I mean, I can tell you that and I say this, you know, obviously as his friend, but I would say it if it wasn't his friend. Nobody's nobody's changed handicapping in, in this uh, in, in thoroughbred racing more than Andy Serling. There's just and anybody who argues that is, is just wrong. No, I completely agree. You know, when it comes to like a, from, you know, the, the, the TV role and that job, I mean, it's hard. It's, it's hard for a lot. I mean, and I'm not complaining. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying it's hard. Like you're on live TV, you, you're being forced to talk about a race that you might not actually be betting and you have to have a clever opinion. And if you say something stupid, people are going to get upset about it. And, um, I thought, I, you know, I, I've I've always thought one thing that, you know, Andy's delivery could be brash at times. There's lots of things about Andy. Like you said, he's very intense. But no one can argue how hard he works. He does not cut corners and he deserves a, a, a lot of respect um, for that. You know, I mean, you know, you might not like his delivery and you might think he's got a bad opinion or whatever it is, but no one can argue how hard he works. Um, I, I know that, that, uh, that, you know, first getting involved in this game and it's, you know, I, I think you probably feel the same way I do. It's like getting involved in this game and having these people that were, that were like they were, they were essentially celebrities to us as young racing racing fans. You turn on the simulcast feed, you see Andy Serling talking. That's Andy Serling, you know. It's like that. And so when you become friends with him or whatever, it's it, at first it's a little bit surreal. The first time I remember meeting Andy was we went to dinner. Um, myself, you, Andy, maybe Travis. I don't know if Travis was with us. We went to Dudley's in in Lexington. And I just remember, like, I felt like at times I was just like staring at him, like, "Oh my God, it's Andy Serling!" <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And then, no, and then the second time I hung out with him, <laughs> who I saw him was when you were staying with him at Saratoga. We were going to eat, and we went to his apartment to uh, to to <laughs> to uh, to get everything to get your stuff before you drop your stuff off so we could go to dinner. And he's sitting at his desk in his boxers and a shirt, boxers and a shirt, sitting Indian style, handicapping for like Wednesday, freaking out about something that had happened on the card that day. And yeah. I was like, this dude is nuts. That's, that's, and that's the date. I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's him. I mean, it's, it's funny and, and everybody knows it, you know, the people that know him appreciate it. And, and, you know, I remember when, and, and I'm sure this may have eventually was going to come up anyway, but um, so I eventually started doing some work for Andy Byer and still do. And so in, I think it was 2016, 20, 2016, I was going to go on talking horses and, and, and Andy Byer sent me, and you know, I mean, there's still, you want to talk about like being starstruck, even when, when my phone lights up and it says Andy Byer now it's, it's, <laughs> my mother would probably be upset with me saying this, but it's like God's calling. Right. I mean, the guy that you've spent so much time reading and, you know, listening to the things that he said, reading his columns, reading his books. And so this particular day I went on talking horses and I got a phone call later in the day from Andy Byer. And he says, he says, Nick, that's a, it's a tremendous job that you did. And you know, that little Andy is very, very tough. And, and we just had a big laugh about it. Cause it was like, you know, if you go on talking horses and you're not prepared, he's going to make you look like a complete fool, you know, cause he's going to be right. And he's going to know all the ins and outs of everything that's gone on in past races and what's going to happen that day. And, and he's going to be, he's going to be blunt about it. And he's going to, if you're not ready for it, he's going to destroy you. 
Yeah, I mean, I'll be straight up. I don't even care. I look at the schedule and I see if Andy's on when I'm on and the races I know that he's on, I dig a little bit deeper. Just because you know, I just don't want him to say something where I don't have an answer for it. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And, and I'm not even saying I don't want to be, I don't have to be right. I just want to have an answer. And, uh, and so, but he makes everybody around him better, you know? And so that's, that's, that's fine. I'm all, I'm all right with that. Um, you mentioned 2007 when you were at the Breeders' Cup and that's when you, uh, you were at Monmouth and you went up. I, I remember that experience. You, Perlin was, uh, was, was a very big horse for you that day. Wasn't he or that weekend? Yeah, I, I liked Curlin. I guess I was kind of a Curlin fanboy, but um, I liked Curlin earlier in the year and felt like, I thought, remember, I, th- I think I, I'm pretty sure I was at Sam Houston with my dad the day that Curlin won his debut and then subsequently got purchased. And um, actually, no, you know what? I was at, I was at Lone Star because I was up there for something and Invasor won the Don that day. I'm almost positive. And so, you know, we all knew Curlin was going to be really good. Obviously, I, I liked the way he ran in the Preakness and then. Um, I remember Travis was working at Louisiana Downs the day the Haskell Haskell was on a Sunday and they went through the post parade and I, he called me and he said, are you going to bet the race? And I said, I'm sure as hell not going to bet Curlin. I mean, he looks terrible. He's, he's, and I don't, I mean, equine physicality, you know, like you, I, I make sure they have four legs, but I mean, Curlin looked like he had been in the feed tub a little too much and, and it seemed like it was going to be a race for fitness. And so I, I liked Curlin a lot in the jockey club gold cup. And then we were sitting in the, the hotel lobby handicapping the week of the Breeders' Cup. And I said to Travis, like, Curlin's not going to lose this classic at all. So I had, you know, I had a, obviously it was a typical Breeders' Cup. I had a ton of opinions. And the first Breeders' Cup race, I loved Maryfield. So I hit a nice exacta with Maryfield over Miraculous Miss. And there were, I want to say, 10 Breeders' Cup races at that point. So that was the first. I proceeded to lose the next eight very handily. Um, including any undercard races, and got to the Breeders' Cup Classic. And it was one of probably four times in my life where I just said, you know, F it, I'm going to bet the rest of my money on one particular horse. And if I lose, then, you know, I'll take an ATM or something or I'll find my way home. I got a plane ticket. But uh, and so Curlin was one of them. And, and as they were, they were rambling around the far turn there, you kind of knew that that Curlin was moving best. And so it, it made me a big fan of his. I thought he was a really remarkable horse, and, and he's he's one that I think doesn't maybe doesn't get quite the appreciation he deserves. I think that the if he had won the the classic in in '08, obviously, I think people would like him a lot more. But he really had no business running on that synthetic. Um, he was a he was a really good horse and a, and a big big favorite of mine. Yeah, I think you know two of my favorite race calls ever too were um, were his back to back races in the in the in the Preakness and the Belmont. I mean that race with Street Sense was just awesome, and then uh, and then also the race against Rags to Riches. Those two calls of Durkins, I thought those are those were magnificent. Yeah, they were tremendous. Well, and you know what, Trevor's call of the of the classic that year was excellent as well. And you know, a lot of people really dumped on Trevor in 06 and and into 07 because he had he had obviously he'd, he'd succeeded uh, Tom Durkin in being the race caller cuz the Breeders Cup switched networks and um and so you know obviously 06 didn't go particularly well for him but 07 was a hell of a lot better and the conditions were horrible and in his call in the in the classic was very very good so it was it ended ended really well you know, it's funny thinking about Curl and I just had to look it up because I couldn't remember. Um, we don't really see that anymore with a horse like that that's so 
that is so dominant on dirt try a big stake on the grass. I mean, I guess California Chrome did it um, when he when he ran on the grass. But uh, wh- what do you remember? I don't. I just remember him running on the grass, and I remember that he got second. But I don't really remember a lot about the race. I'm sure you remember the damn post he was in. Do you remember anything about whether you thought he was going to run well on the grass? Uh, I did, and you know that was a that was a time where Smart Strike was. Now, Smart Strike had one of the most unbelievable days for a stallion that you'll ever find in, in, in 07 when on what was then known as, as Super Saturday, which was the prep day for the Breeders' Cup. Um, that was before everybody turned Travers Day into Super Saturday because nobody can run in, in you know less than 45 days. But um, on that particular card, Fabulous Strike won the Vosburgh, Curlin won the Jockey Club Gold Cup, and English Channel won the Joe Hirsch. And so those were grade one wins at six furlongs on the dirt, 10 furlongs on the dirt, and 12 furlongs on the turf. And they were all sons of Smart Strike. So Smart Strike was the kind of sire at that point that you knew could, I mean, they really could do anything. And there was a little bit of pedigree uh, in, in, for Curlin, but what it boiled down to, he lost to, lost to a horse that Redham owned, I'm almost positive. Did he lose to Red Rocks? I, I can't remember. Yeah, no, it was, it was Red Rocks. Yeah, he lost to Red Rocks. Okay. And obviously Red Rocks is a really good horse. So, I mean, there was no shame in it. And and it really boiled down to it, it. Jess Jackson was just a sportsman, you know. He wanted to run his horses in in aggressive spots, and you know, racing would be well served by having a few more Jess Jacksons. God rest his soul. You know, it was, he was a guy that. I mean, look if if he didn't end up owning Curlin individually, and he didn't end up buying Rachel Alexandra, we may have been deprived of of two of the more hers more so than his. Of, of two of the better campaigns that we've ever seen. I mean, in, in 08, Curlin went to Dubai early, and he just destroyed the Dubai World Cup field, came back, won the Foster, carrying, what, 130? Um, didn't beat a great field by any means, but did it very handily, and then tried the turf in just a, a sportsman's-type gesture before winning at Saratoga, and I think he ended up setting the earnings record in the Jockey Club Gold Cup. So, yeah, it was it was a, there was... It was a situation where you saw a really good horse try something different. And again, I mean, I get why people don't run dirt horses on the turf because a lot of times it can devalue them. But Curlin was the kind of horse that you could tell Jess Jackson just didn't really care about what it might do for his – he was so valuable already. And uh, it was just an interesting and fun thing. Now you, we, I think we're, that was 2007. We, we, we moved on to 2008. And this is from, from our friend Pat Cummings. He said that you made a declaration – uh, right when they were getting in the gate in 2008, and uh, it was something about Datara being 50 to 1. <laughs> so, so Joe, Philly Joe, as you've discussed, um, so Philly Joe and Pat went to high school together, and I had never met Joe, and and so we, I met Joe the Friday of that weekend. So I flew into uh, to Philly and stayed with Pat, and then we were going to pick up Joe and drive to Monmouth. And so we drove to Monmouth. We went to went to Monmouth that day, and and you know had a great time. Went to dinner at Rooney's um, with the with then the voice of Monmouth Park, Larry Colmus. And so that we were talking at dinner that night, and he said, you know, what do you want to happen tomorrow? And I said, I mean, I want Big Brown to win, you know. And and I they looked at me like I was nuts, um, but I did want Big Brown to win. I wanted them all to get around there safely, is, is what I said first, because obviously what had happened with Eight Bells was just five weeks before. And so, I mean, I was like outrageously confident Big Brown was going to win. And I had been there for only one triple crown failure at that point. But, you know, my father always held it over my head that he saw two triple crowns. I mean, my father was at Secretary in Seattle Sloop's triple crowns. So with all due respect to American Pharaoh and Justify and anybody else who wins the triple crown from here on out, you know, he's going to have the win in that column anyway. 
but I was dying to see a triple crown. And so, you know, we, we, we were beat up on Belmont day. It was a, like a really long, hot day. We had grandstand seats and section. God only knows probably at the long Island railroad station. And, and so the Belmont comes around and they're the fields walking in front of us to get to the starting gate. And it was obnoxiously hot that day, even for somebody coming from Houston. And so they walk in front of us. I mean, and Datara is like, Horses that are washed out laugh at how washed out Tatara was. He was like just, you know, all lathered up and, and I mean, and let's not kid ourselves. I mean, his form sucked. So I said, I said, who is that? And Pat says, oh, that's Tatara. I'm like, he's 50 to one to even finish the race. And so, of course, he watered the field, right? And Big Brown loses. And in probably the most embarrassing moment I've ever seen at the racetrack, these, you know, crazed fans in section wherever start throwing water bottles towards the racetrack as Big Brown gallops by with DeZormo, you know, having a fistful of him. And, and I, I had this horribly deflated feeling and Pat looks over and goes, good call on Tatara. Yeah, Pat's the kind of guy that that you always have that friend that has to say something that you know, and they know you know as well, but they still say it, and, and that's why. I mean, it, Pat Pat's that guy. I, I love him dearly, and uh, I know he'll, he'll listen to this and he'll laugh. But yeah, that was a funny experience. Not one of my better prognostications. What, um, was there a lesson from that race? A handicapping lesson from from uh, that Belmont? You know, probably what I determined at that Belmont was that no matter what was going on Triple Crown-wise, I was always going to bet against it. And so the only exception, I didn't bet against Justify. I was, I was very sure Justify was going to win. I did bet against American Pharaoh, and, and I'm not ashamed of it. Um, you bet materiality? I bet, well, I bet on Keen Ice, uh, oddly. And I did have a big – I had a nice try with, with, uh, with some horses in the middle. So I ended up making a little bit of money on the race, but um, – um, it didn't matter. My, I, my day had been set by honor code. So I was good. I was good to go after honor code won that day. And, and, and it ended up that, so yes, the lesson from that race was that I was always going to bet against the triple crown. I bet against it in 2014. And, um, I think I hit the try commissioner and, and, and tonalist. And I bet against it in 2015. I did not, I made one bet in 2018. It was contest related. It was cold exact of justify over Hofburg, which obviously lost. And uh, those are the only triple crowns. So I was p- fully prepared in 2012 to bet against. I'll have another. Um, I think he would have won looking at it in retrospect, but I would have bet against it. That was Union Rags, right? Yes. Union Rags up the rail, tagging painter late. Um, I mean, I think I'll have another was just better than those horses. So that's why I think he would have won. And Union Rags had a very, very good trip to win. And that was a very weak field all in all. So I think he probably would have gotten the job done, but unfortunately we'll never know. You know, in hindsight, um, you know who would have won is if Bodie Meister would have skipped the Preakness, which he never would have done with Baffert, right? But just if he would have, he would have like he'd be nasty at a mile and a quarter. I mean, a mile and a half, excuse me. Just like just go out there and go forty-seven and change and just run them off their feet. Um, I wouldn't have known that then, though, because I would have thought that you know I would have thought that he wouldn't have wanted to stretch out and blah 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 blah. But he ran so good in the Derby, I think he would have been fine. Yeah, you know that's a that's a really was a really fascinating triple crown from a, a lot of standpoints. One of which was that you know Union Rags was getting and Julian Leperu was getting beat up in the media all spring when he kind of had some things go poorly um, in, in some of the races leading up to the Derby, and then I think they they stayed with him for the Derby and then made a jockey change for the for the Belmont. Uh, but you had a few horses that were 
obviously I'll have another kind of popped up as a bit of a surprise in winning the, the Derby. I want to say he was about 20 to one or so. And, and he was the last price that, that before a series of favorites that went all the way through last year. Um, but then you had the Derby where Bodie Meister so clearly was, was best and ran the best race. And then, you know, in the Preakness, I mean, I'll have another was so much the best running him down, right? I mean, Bodie Meister set a, a much softer pace, and and I think there's an argument to be made that he should have just been allowed to to really go, you know, balls to the wall like he did in the Derby, and that that he was the kind that just would run you off your feet. But yeah, those were two really really good races, and and unfortunately, um, we didn't get to see Bodie Meister run in the in the Belmont. He was a better horse than Painter, so I, I think he probably would have fared very well. But uh, that was that's kind of an underrated triple crown in terms of having some appeal, and and as it ended up, you know, those horses really didn't amount to a whole heck of a lot as as older horses, and that was a, a run of time where the older horses were dominated by some of the old stalwarts like Fort Larned and and eventually Mucho Macho Man, uh, Ron the Greek, those types. Did you is that is that the trip Datara is that the trip that you guys went to the Meadowlands after? We, we did yeah sort of foolishly we were we were so beat up from uh from the the whole day and and we and so so joe says come on let's go to the meadowlands or joe's a joe's a big harness guy so i had never been to the meadowlands and this was old meadowlands and we went and sat in the in the pegasus restaurant and and we were just fried i mean we we were you know joe loves to dress nicely at the track and so we all followed suit and wore you know, sport coat. It was 97 degrees out that day. So, I mean, I think we were just really, we wanted to go anywhere where we could sit inside in air conditioning. And, and that's what we did. And we, we bet the trotters and I, I don't, I mean, I couldn't say if we had a hundred dollars between the three of us when we walked in, but we loaded up and, and did what any good degenerate is supposed to do and fired away at the, at the trotters all night and eventually got back to Philly at probably one o'clock in the morning. I think Pat was going on fumes, no doubt about it. Those last few miles, we probably had an angel on the hood. Oh, Pat is a Pat is definitely a sprinter when it comes to uh, hours. He's a, he's got a bedtime. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, Pat's Joe and I would laugh because Pat Pat's a creature of habit. And Pat likes to eat at the same restaurants. He likes to have a routine. He likes to go to the track. He likes to go to dinner. He likes to go back to the hotel. And that's what he likes to do. And and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's just just how he is. So um, he he was definitely out of his comfort zone then, and it it, it took everything he had what Belmont was it? And this is one of my favorite stories. Um, what Belmont was it <laughs> where our boy Jack Jenkins had that little accident? <laughs> Poor Jack's gotten, I don't think you guys mentioned him by, oh, you did mention him by name when, when Travis told the story of him, uh, of him <laughs> exploding. And you, know, you know what, you know what always sticks in my mind about that was that he, he got upstairs and we're all laughing at, at his and what he said and John and you you were like I gotta go bet paid up subscriber and you had to run back downstairs to bet paid up subscriber who broke I think broke her maiden that day or one on one other than I think she broke her maiden she had a big trip in her debut at Keeneland and Al Stahl owned her at the, or Al Stahl trained her at that point in time and she ended up just blowing out the last race and and you had a pretty good pretty good couple of days betting wise those days but anyway so Jack and I are sharing a hotel room. And, um, and J- I mean, Jack at this point in time, and I- I'm obviously no lightweight myself, but um, Jack at this point in time is, is, is every bit of 400 pounds. And so he's, he's telling me the morning of the Belmont, he's like, you know, what are you going to wear? And I said, I'm going to wear a sport coat. I'm going to try and look nice. And so he says, uh, he says, all right, I'm, I'm going to wear a sport coat too. So he takes his clothes out and he, he says, hey, 
come over here and look at this. And so he has his pants on the bed. And I noticed that there's a little bit of weakness in the back seam of his pants. And, you know, big guy code, you, I'm not going to leave him hung out to dry. I'm like, dude, you need to stay away from those pants. And he's like, well, I didn't, you know, I didn't bring any other pants. They don't match, blah, blah, blah. I said, Jack, look, do yourself a favor. At the very least, bring a backup pair of pants. So he says, okay, no problem. So Joe, Philly Joe, Jack, and I are sitting. It was his 2014 Belmont. We're sitting in the Garden Terrace. Joe and I had decided in 2013 when we were sitting outside, we're never going never gonna to watch the Belmont again from anywhere but the Garden Terrace. So we have a table in the Garden Terrace. We get, we're on the glass, right on the finish line. Great table. Nobody sitting behind us. Perfectly, you know, great day. Um, we, we hit a couple of races early. Jack really liked Norm Bega in the, in the Brooklyn. And I hit the pick three that ended with Sweet Reason in the middle of the card. So we're doing really good. And, and so Jack stands up and turns around and says, I think my pants are holding up okay. And we turn and look, and his pants had not held up at all. I mean, and there is like, there is, it is a blowout, full scale. And I'm like, Jack, sit back down, sit down. And he's like, what's the matter? I said, your pants completely blew out. And he's like, oh, you know, and he says the F word. And, you know, and so we're laughing and we're trying to figure out what to do. And we were so startled by the sight of, you know, Jack's boxers when, when the expectation was that his pants had held up well. So anyway, so I become his bed runner now because he's got to sit down. He can't, you know, he can't be walking around with, with his pants, you know, looking like a tattered flag. And so, so, so we're sitting there and, you know, it was one of, one of those long days at the track. There's kind of a lull between races. And this was the first year that they did the, the really big stakes laden card. And so they, you, part of the package, if you bought a table in the garden terrace was that you got unlimited beer and wine. So we're like drinking pitcher after pitcher of, I don't know, Coors Light or Miller Light or something. And so Joe says, boy, it's really gotten warm in here, right? And Jack says, and forgive me for anybody who's offended by this. I really don't think anybody listening to this will. And Jack goes, no, I'm doing fine. I got a nice breeze blowing right up my ass. And so we just absolutely die laughing. And so now, of course, crunch time is when we have to leave. And, and he's like, what do you think I should do? And so I said, I think you should go, you know, full mid to late 90s preppy and tie your sport coat around your waist. And Joe says, he can't do that. He's going to look like an idiot. I said, what about in comparison to how he's going to look if he walks out with his pants hanging off his ass? So he ends up tying his, tying his sport coat around his waist, walks to the car, had the backup pair of pants in the trunk. So thankfully, as, as, as you know, 85,000 people streamed out of Belmont, everybody who, uh, who, who, who was, was, had paid attention got a, a, a nice sight of Jack Jenkins, the pride of Tennessee. Um, changing pants in, in the in the Belmont parking lot. Oh, he's the best. He's a great. He's the best. Uh, he's he's not four hundred anymore. He's sexy now. No, so. he's he's lost uh, he's lost a lot of weight. Um, yeah, he's doing doing good. And you know, you are you, if he's not he's not of the caliber of a certain person that we've encountered at a major racetrack in Lexington, in Lexington, Lexington, Kentucky. But Jack's a walking bad beat story. Like he's always got, he's always got a good bad beat story. And he's going to hear this and get mad at me. And he's going to say, I'm just as bad, but he knows he's worse. <laughs> I told Jack, I was like, Jack, I got to have you on here. He's like, I ain't no damn celebrity. I said, dude, you'll be awesome. I can listen to you read the phone book. <laughs> and you know, what was funny was the night that, so I was doing work for another racing related service um, at this point in time. And so I had this very long Belmont write up to work on. On, on Thursday night of that week where he and I were sharing a room at the Long Island Marriott. And I kid you not, Jack talked the entire time. 
that I was typing. And he realized after, I mean, this monologue had gone on for probably a solid 45 minutes. He said, God, he's, damn, I've been talking your ear off. I might as well shut up now. I said, actually, you've probably been the only thing that kept me awake. So I'm really appreciative of you having done that. But I mean, he was, there was no stopping him. He was a runaway freight train. Oh my God. He, he, uh, uh, I'm going to save, I'm going to save it for when I have him on, I'm going to have him say it, but he has some of the best sayings in the world. And my favorite one is when he's talking about how a horse was so far back and he related it to the anatomy of a cat. And I, I, it's still the funniest thing I've ever heard anyone ever say. So I'll I'll, I'll make you, I'm going to have him one day just to talk and and talk about (laughs) turf pedigrees and stuff. Um, so I think that it, this is a good time to transition to to uh, really the first time we hung out. So that was one of the reasons it was one of the greatest days of your professional life. But also, uh, it was a it was a huge day for you in the Breeders' Cup Betting Challenge. And so um, that was the first contest I had ever played in. And so we, you know, I, I told the story about how I try to get Robert to reach out, and and Robert <laughs> didn't reach out. Once I started playing in contests. I had qualified and I remember sending you an email. I don't remember how I got your email. Maybe, maybe Robert got it for me finally, or I can't remember, but I got your email. I sent you an email just like asking you for contest advice. Um, and, and so we ended up sitting together at the Breeders' Cup betting challenge in 2014. And you had, um, it's, it's great because my epic run in the NHC and your epic run in the Breeders' Cup betting challenge, we were both there with each other and both of us didn't do good. So, you know, in, in, in each other's good run. So we were just kind of our, each other's cheerleader, but you were remarkable that day. You hit seven trifectas. Um, and for people that don't know the seven trifectas you hit, you hit the juvenile Phillies for 22,000, uh, the Philly and mare turf for a mere $731, uh, the Philly mare sprint for 13,000, the turf sprint for 650, the sprint for 2100, the juvenile for 2000, and then the uh, the big one that really puts you over the edge, uh, the the mile for 20,000. What do you, what do you remember about that day? What were some of the highlights of those big pops? But we still got screwed on that mile turf payoff. Um, not that that's what I take out of it, but I still feel like it should have been should have been a little bit better. But uh, yeah, I had not. That was my that was my third live money contest ever. So I qualified for the Breeders' Cup Betting Challenge in 2012 via BCQualify.com, one of the two two tier contests where you had to to qualify for the second part. And and oddly, so Jack qualified as well. There were five spots available. Jack got one, I got one, and our friend Dan Kovaleski got one. And we were all people that frequented Steve Bick's message board. And so it was kind of amazing that that we all had that happen. And so Jack and I sat together that weekend. And you know, I, I was just, I was like literally a, a fish. You know, I was a square. I was whatever whatever terminology you want to use for it. I was somebody who had been given $7,500 to bet on these Breeders' Cup races. And I was just completely... It, unprepared, incapable, all of it. And there was no, I realized there was no way that you could simulate that type of contest ahead of time. So, you know, I putzed around and and finished with a little bit, obviously that was all found money. So I wanted to finish with a little bit of money so that I could take some home. Um, So that moving forward, I didn't play in another, I, I said to myself, I'm not playing in a live money contest until either A, I have the capital to do so, or B, I have the experience, or really what I needed to do was both. 
So going forward, I didn't play in a live money contest until 2014 at Keeneland. I entered the grade one gamble, finished third. So I qualified for the NHC. And then I figured I'll try and qualify for the Breeders' Cup betting challenge. It'll be fun. Well, by August, I had played a couple of BC qualify events. I'm not a big $2 win place better. You know, I usually get frustrated. We could, you and I could go on and on for hours about these, right? So I, we decided that we're going to, we're going to create a little partnership and enter the Breeders' Cup Betting Challenge. So Travis, my dad, Pat, Joe, and I split the entry. And some people were one-eighth partners, some people were one-quarter partners, so on and so forth. So we go out to, to Santa Anita, play the first day. But, but just to be clear, just to be clear, not that anyone really gives a damn. There's probably like, a, like four people that would like to get up in arms about that. But you drove the ship. 100%. Oh, yeah. You drove that yeah, and none of them had entries either. You were by yourself. Right. And in fact, they they could make rec- – and I've seen you in action with that partnership. They can make recommendations, but you have the final say, and you're respectful enough and respect their opinion enough that you'll incorporate them, but you drive that ship. You cook that dinner. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's ultimately my call, um, and I've told them you know that's – that's just as, as simple as it goes. And the good thing is, you know, my dad and Joe are, are very similar in that they like to gamble. They just wanted the action. You know, they, they didn't care anything about it. Travis had to work. Travis was doing the basically everything but the race calls. And, and Pat was working for Trackus. So, I mean, they were busy. And little did I realize that the connectivity at Santa Anita sucks. So the, the Wi-Fi didn't work most of the day. So I was all alone. And, and, it, and it actually worked out just fine. But so they knew that I was ultimately going to make the call. Obviously, none of them were playing the contest either. So it was not as if there was any kind of collusion or anything like that. Um, I'm, I'm too stubborn to, for anybody to collude with anyway. But so the first day, you know, we didn't really have anything good happen. Hit a, hit a small or actually didn't even I don't think we hit a bet. And so we had about thirty eight, thirty nine hundred dollars left, which is a little bit more than half the bankroll. And so Pat and I were driving back to the hotel and. And he said, well, what do you think the game plan is for tomorrow? And I said, well, we're going to, you know, we're going to go at it like we did today. There's nothing, I'm not going to do anything different. He said, well, maybe we should try and, you know, make a couple of below minimum plays early so that we can try and, and build a little capital. And I said, that's fine. Cause obviously we didn't have the five minimum bets. You know, you, you needed, you needed to bet $900 five times. But the last thing I was thinking about was making sure that we bet enough so that we could qualify for a prize. I mean, we were trying to, to get our money back at the worst you know, if not take a swing with a little bit of money that we had left anyway. So it was one of those where, you know, they say like if a shooter's in a slump, the first time they see the ball go through the net, they get their confidence back. And so it had rained like crazy the night before. And excuse me, I was dying to bet on Ocho, Ocho, Ocho. And I really wanted to bet him in whatever the race now is the juvenile turf sprint. And yeah, down the hill, right? Exactly, right. And so it got rained off the turf. It was on the dirt, and I ended and it ended up being kind of a scratch laden field. It wasn't very interesting, but I ended up hitting the try, and I made maybe a couple of hundred bucks. And it was like, okay, I can do this. I can place winning bets. And so I felt like the, the juvenile Phillies was had chaos written all over it all along. And I, and so my play in the race was to key. There was a Hollandorfer horse named Majestic Presence who I really liked. Her. Wonder Gal and Top Decile. And I played those three over those three over all. And I moved the all into the middle and put the all on top. And then I keyed Majestic Presence again. Well, obviously, Wonder Gal catching, I think the I think it was feathered that she caught for third, 
enabled us to hit to try for $2 with will take or uh, uh, take charge brandy on top at 60 to one. So, so I, you know, I I'm standing on the apron watching the race and, and I had seen you guys before because you had your, your seats right there in the section in front of it. And I'm watching the race and, and, you know, everybody's cheering for this crazy long shot that's winning and I'm cheering for a horse to run third. And I go running back inside and I said to John Doyle was at the table next to me and, and he's like, did you hit that? And I said, did Wonder Gal run third? And he's like, yeah. And I said, yeah, I got $2 on the try. And he's like, oh my God, that thing's going to be huge. And so then I watched the replay and I think to myself, I don't know what the hell he's watching because she did not run third. And so by the grace of God, she got third. And so all of a sudden, you know, $22,000 were vaulted into contention. And then the, the two big highlights after that were Judy the Beauty holding on over Better Lucky. That ended up being, I think, an $11 try for us. And it paid about, I don't know, $1,200, 1200 for a dollar. And then obviously the mile. The mile was a, was a chaos race for me, um, top to bottom. I wanted to bet against Toronado, who felt like a horse that that maybe was a little over the top coming in and that it wasn't really their intention, but they were just running for the hell of it. And uh, loved Caraconti, Anadan, uh, Trade Storm. And I want to say we used Mustajib and did a, another similar trifecta, four over four overall move the alls around. And so, you know, I do well in contests like that when there's chaos. So I, I, I'm a, you know, I'm somebody that's going to try and play for extreme pace scenarios. I'm going to play for long shots to fill in. It is not the ideal betting strategy. And I know there's going to be people out there thinking, good luck using all those alls and having success. Well, I've definitely learned as time has gone by, I paid the price to learn that you cannot be so flippant and so loose with how you construct trifecta bets. The only day you really have a chance of doing it and making money is Breeders' Cup Day. And so this happened to be one of those days. But the majority of Breeders' Cups don't have that kind of chaos. And you'll uh, you'll run through a lot of capital trying to find it. But this was one of those days, luckily, that did. Right. And then, you know, Nick also will, will he'll have, he, he's, he's not going to read you, not going to tell you all the bets because it'll take him too long. But I've seen him. He'll fill up a legal pad of bets. He, he didn't just make the three by three by all, you know, three by all by three, all by three by three. He also pressed up the, the, the likely winners and he had a $10 try if the, if the favorite won. And, you know, there's a lot more to the run than that. Um, but you know, he also does it in a way where if chaos happens, he can catch that try. So, um, you didn't get a big check though that day, did you? I, I did not get a big check and I'm still pissed about it, but I, I made one more, I made one more bet. So going into the Breeders' Cup Classic, I was in second. And, uh, and I was about, I want to say six or 8,000 behind. And I was one of those people, New York racing fan that was way in on Tonalist. And so I bet Tonalist in, in, in the classic and, um, and I put in one more bet for $360 and it lost. I didn't cash any tickets on the race and I ended up finishing fourth, $330 behind John Conti and John Conti got a big check. And so did Paul Weiser, who finished second, and so did Bob Trainer, who finished first. And fourth place did not get a big check. Now, the amount was big, but it was not a big cardboard check. And I don't have the handicapping contest exploits that you do where I've been given big checks and, and things like that. So it would have been a big – I don't have an ego, but it would have been a big big thing. At least it would have made for some good photos. Oh, man, what a big check. That would, that would have been fun. That was a fun – that was a fun run uh, that day. And that, that was fun. That was, uh, I think that was probably the first time that, 
you know, obviously the first time we'd hung out at the racetrack, but you also met like my whole, my whole crew was there that day. You met, you know, uh, you met Joey and Mike Epps and just everybody. We, we, uh, that was kind of the, the coming out party. We obviously had fun with Bobby's kitten. So everybody was, everybody was happy when we left, when we left that day. Well, I remember feeling bad because it was, yeah, it was great. It was great meeting everybody. I mean, your, your, your crew is a tremendous bunch and, and they, they obviously found their, their way into racetrack life very, very easily. But there are a lot of guys I think that find their way to a good time wherever they are. Um, but I felt bad because I remember before the Philly and Mare Sprint, you said to me, I have one bet left and I really like Stone Tastic here and Bobby's Kitten in the next race. And I said to you, I mean, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to tell you what to do, but we obviously don't have a whole ton of opportunities left. So if you feel like you have a strong opinion, then, you know, step on the gas here. And of course, we all know what happened. Stontastic got hooked up in a big pace and didn't run well. And Bobby's kitten ran great. And luckily you did, you did plenty, you accomplished plenty on your own um, to make up for it. And um, I mean, nobody, nobody's been able to, nobody I've ever encountered at the racetrack when their opinion is right, has been able to, as you like to say, make them pay like you have. And, and I've, I mean, that would have been settled after Derby day in 2015, in my opinion, but it's, it is certainly the case. 2015. That was your first Kentucky Derby. Um, and it was a special one because, you know, one of your best friends in the world was doing something for the first time that day too. How was that Derby experience for you? Oh man. Amazing. I mean, will always be one of my most amazing racetrack experiences, if not the most, um, and really it was, it was seven years in the making in the sense that obviously Travis and I are very, very dear friends. And, um, Travis was one of the finalists for the Churchill Downs announcing job in 2008 and he didn't get the job. Uh, Mark Johnson got the job. And so the day that he got a phone call, letting him know that he didn't get the job, he called me and he said, you know, they told me I didn't get it, you know, but let's go ahead and go to the Derby next year anyway. Because we had planned on going to the Derby in 09. It was one of those, it was a year where Louisiana Downs was going to start a week later. And so I said, no, we're not going to go. And he's like, why not? I said, because the first Derby that we both go to will be the one that you call. And he's like, what if I don't ever call the Derby? And I said, that's just a chance that I think we're both willing to take. And we agreed at that point in time that, that was going to be our first derby. And so it was, you know, and, and I mean, the people who listened when he was on, like one of the coolest things to me about Travis is, is the only person in my life, other than maybe a couple of guys that I went to school with that are doctors, that had a dream to do something as a child. And he did it. You know, we all I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do when I grow up. Right. I mean, we're all we're all a work in progress and, and, and most of us are in that respect. But, you know, here's a guy who was dying to be a track announcer, did everything he could to make himself better at it, available for it, learn about it and ended up having it happen. So anyway, so it ended up that my first derby, his first derby was the first one that he called. And I mean, everything about it was it was amazing. It was the weather was beautiful for two days. American Pharaoh ended up winning, ended up winning the Triple Crown. Uh, it was a tremendous day of racing. And obviously, we got to share a couple of meals with you guys. And you made a fortune and a half betting on the races on Saturday. And, and luckily, I was <laughs> I was bright enough to provide the one small price horse in your pick three that you had been dying to bet for weeks waiting on Divisadero. So it was it was tremendous. I forgot about that. That's true. I didn't forget about it, but that, that's absolutely true. I, I think I've told that story before. I, like, I was like, boss, I need one horse in the Pat Day Mile. Who you got? The competitive edge. Good. Thanks. And that was it. We were in a, we, I don't know what we were doing. We were in a suburban. This was before Uber. So I don't know if we like. Didn't, didn't you pay somebody to drive you in a golf cart from some house that you rented by University of Louisville? That was after. Oh, yeah, that was after. Okay. okay. We, uh, 
and then we went to dinner that night. Remember? Oh, I'm going to tell that story. So, so we, so that, that situation, like we had rented this house and I, it was Mike Epps, uh, 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 one of Robert's college friends, Eric, Robert Schram. And we were, we, we, I think we like rented a suburb. I can't remember. We're in a suburban, like a nice big car. And I were on the way there. And I know I wanted to bet Dame Dorothy cause she had that a minus work. And I thought that she could beat Judy, the beauty off of the Judy, the beauty winning the breeders cup that you hit that try in. And I knew I wanted to bet Devisadero, but I didn't look at the Pat day mile because on Derby day, I don't go early. I, cause it's just too long and I drink too much. If I'm, I mean, I just can't be there for the first, I, it's just too long of a day. I don't go to the stake start. Well, when you're with other people, we were just late and whatever. So I didn't look at the Pat day mile cause I didn't think I was going to get there. So I called you and I was like, boss, he just like you said, and I was frantic. Who do you like? And I didn't even look at the race. And you said competitive edge. And I said, all right, cool. See you later. Hung up. We park on the other side of the racetrack and we have to walk through the infield to get over to the civilization where whatever. And that's when I'm, everyone's walking slow. I'm way ahead of them. I go in line. I bet the $300 cold pick three with competitive edge, um, Dame Dorothy and Devisadero. And I, the lady says, are you sure? And I said, yes, just put it, just hit it. And she hits it. And I look back and they broke and that paid like $42,000. And that was the start to our like magical day for all of us, the entire group. And so after everything was over, we had made a ton of money and we, <laughs> we got into a golf cart because we were trying to find somewhere to go like after like there's you know that that kind of that that sketchy neighborhood around there's a lot of block parties and stuff and so we we i gave the guy a hundred bucks to take us and it's like four of us or whatever and um one of i don't give a damn i'll just tell the story one of my friends it's legal in like 10 states now one of my friends was looking for extracurriculars not me i don't i don't care i, I would tell you if i did but it wasn't me one of my friends was looking for extracurriculars uh, that you can get in california in a dispensary and the guy's like, the guy's like, yeah, I'm going to go into my, my cousin's house and I'll bring it out. And he goes in and we're waiting and we're waiting and we're waiting. Dude, it's like 20 minutes, man. So we get, we go to the, like the party to go see where he's at. And when we come back out of the party, we couldn't find him. He's gone. The golf cart's gone. So we pay another hundred dollars to another guy in a golf cart to take us all the way, all the way by the university of Louisville to drop us off. And then that night we go to dinner uh, with the boss, man. And that's when you got your name, Nikki, the boss. Because you had on those glasses. Yeah, Mike bought those ridiculous glasses that looked like what Uncle Junior wore. Um, and, and he brought, I mean, this is like, Mike Epps is the kind of guy that wore, that wore old lady sunglasses in the paddock at Santa Anita. And, and, and like, without mentioning specifically, a major racing broadcaster, female, found herself walking over to Mike to comment on his sunglasses. Mike's the kind of guy who could do that. So he has these like gigantic Mr. Magoo glasses and I put them on and, and, and made some gesture with my hands, typical of people of my culture. And, and it was like, look at the boss. And then, you know, there, there's where it started. So yeah, that's, I guess you probably called me and said, Nick, who do you like in the pad day mile? And then, you know, after that moving forward, it, it definitely, Definitely. Yeah. You remember we, so we went to, to Louisville, whatever, fourth street live, I think it's called. And we watched Pacquiao fight Mayweather that night. 
Or no, no, no. Yeah, yeah Pat's Jeff Mayweather. Yeah, and and we we were, we practically begged you not to pay for us to go in because it's like no, you know, it's, it's a waste of money. And you're like, no, 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 come on, we got to do it. You know, I want all this money, blah blah blah. And so that fight sucked. But do you remember the almost fight we saw walking back to the car <laughs> where this guy got robbed or was was about to get robbed in front of us? And the most hilarious thing was Mike threw his arms in front of Travis and I like a you know like a worried parent with their kid in the front seat as they see an accident happening. Like he was going to protect us. Protect Travis. He's got to call races again on Thursday. The guy tried to pick some guy's pocket. I remember I paid like, dude, I, and I'm not bragging because it's stupid. I I think I paid like $600 for it. It's 75 a person. There were eight of us. Yeah, it was ridiculous. And we went in there and we all had this idea of what we were going to do. And we all looked at each other and we were like, dude, I'm exhausted. And we yeah. all just ended up leaving and then we almost saw that fight. Yeah, we were um, we, we were totally beat. You and I have been, it's been together for that fight and uh, Mayweather, Mayweather McGregor. Um, which was a different experience, but was actually was a, was a hell of a lot of fun. Um, that was fun. Yeah. At Angel Cordero's yep, exactly. and, and uh, Pete, boy. Oh my that, God. You want to talk about Pete misbehaving like you do on this show. I mean, Pete, God bless Peter Thomas Fornital. He, he bet on, he bet on Mayweather. And I mean, if you've ever seen somebody obnoxiously or more sloppily cheering in what effectively was a one to 20 shot, I, I, it's impossible. And he just... <laughs> I mean, just wrecked drunk. You know, it was Travers Day. It was a long, long day. And um, and we had been – I mean, we were upstairs at the Shake Shack spot. You know, we were hitting it hard right from the beginning. And it was one of those days, I feel like, where everybody made money. You know, it was, it was a good combination of horses that we liked. And so everybody had a good day. We had a nice dinner that night. I don't think you joined us for dinner, but I, we met you afterwards. We had a nice dinner at the Tapas Place across the street on Broadway, which I can't remember the name, but it's very good, the Tef Paella. And, uh, and so Boca, you said you want to Boca, Boca Bistro. right? And you said you want to come watch the fight. So anyway, we go watch the fight. And I mean, Pete is like every time Mayweather's getting the upper hand. And let's not kid ourselves. Mayweather had the upper hand basically the entire fight. Pete's like screaming, us, "There you go! There you go! There you go!" It's like Jesus Christ! You didn't have an aneurysm before the fight's over. You need to calm down. I lost. I lost a hundred dollars to Ricardo Santana. I bet. Uh, I bet. Uh, I bet Mayweather. I mean, I bet. I bet. Uh, I bet. Uh, uh, not uh, Connor McGregor, anyways. But uh, it was very was, funny. It, it didn't matter. It was a practical joke one, practical joke, and Lady Eli won that day. So everything was right in the world. That is that is absolutely right. Lady Eli won exactly right. You guys need you guys hit the pick six. Um, yeah, and six, yeah. and uh, Songbird lost was the only thing I think that was not expected. But um, if you remember, Pete was Pete's beer was making its way onto Eric Cancel a little too frequently, and I think that was that was the concern and. And another podcast guest, Jake Bappas, the big fella, had to step in and, and help Pete get to a more stable spot in the in the house. I forgot how he was. Um, Saratoga. Um, one of my favorite stories and, and a great idea, I think, for listeners that um, that have a group. I, I think that that it, it's great. If you can find someone in your group or it's hard to do it to find a consensus, but you got to like, you know, you kind of have to let some, you know, be let there be one chef. But you put together a a uh, pick five syndicate and i don't want to say syndicate because to me the, the the term syndicate means like you made money off of it it was just a group that was you know if you put in a hundred dollars that's how much equity you got in the group and you put a group together that scored out pretty good back in 2016 yeah so uh that was this was another idea of travis's and he'd been saying for years he's like we need to pull some money together play the pick five blah 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 and so i had kind of thought oh, okay sure you yeah, know whatever and so then leading into that meet 
he said to me, let's do it. You know, let's get our guys together and, and see who wants to, to get in. So I think it was about seven or eight people that put in anywhere from a thousand to 2000. And there was only one pick five back then. So the plan was, you know, we're going to play the pick five every day. And, and again, it was a situation where we let people offer their opinions and the good thing was that we knew everybody that was in on it. So, you know, we had a group text and we would, we would kind of kick some opinions back and forth. And I let everybody know, like, hey, I mean, if, if somebody's, got a, somebody's got a really strong opinion on a horse, I mean, I'm handicapping the races anyway because I was still handicapping publicly at that point. Um, I said, I'm going to handicap them anyway, but if somebody has something they really want to lean on, then, then let me know. And so we did that and I tried to accommodate it. I realized about 10 or 12 days into the meet, like, yeah, that's not going to work. So I let everybody know, um, ultimately I'm going to make the final decision, so on and so forth. So we started to meet with $14,000 and by the final Friday of the meet, we had, we had hit a, you know, we hit a couple of good ones. We hit for about 6,800 the second week on a Monday. I remember a Billy Turner horse won the fifth. It was off the turf. And, and then we hit for, uh, maybe four or 5,000 on Travers day. I think I cold decked the pick five that day on my analysis and, and Shug won the fifth over, uh, over a, a Chad Brown horse. And, and so we hit, you know, we hit then. And, um, and so it was Friday of closing weekend. I sent everybody a text. I said, look, we've got $8,000 left. So they're adding the late pick five. We're going to play it aggressively. Right. So we're going to, you know, we're going to go after it. And so we hit both pick fives on Friday. Neither of them paid all that great. I think we made a little bit of money. Saturday, we missed the early pick five. Wayne Lucas won one of the early races, but the horse that ended up being okay at like 20 to one, we, we lost the early pick five. Well, in the late pick five, I love this sequence. And it was one of those oddly where you actually like a sequence and it works out. And, and I loved it because I thought that the spinaway was simple. I thought you really needed two horses. I thought that the Woodward was relatively simple in that you were going to loan A frosted and you were going to use your other other win candidates as Bs. And then I thought that the the uh, the Glens Falls was the other stake that day. And there was a Chad Brown horse for Don Alberto who was favored, whose name I can't remember. And then the other horse I liked was Suffused. And so I was a, I had been on Suffused multiple times that year. So anyway, I put the pick fives in and the first leg was won by Silver Ride at 36 to 1. And so we're in good shape at this point. We, we, we've got Silver Ride as an A. And, and then on, on my own, I had bet some trifectas with Silver Ride and, um, and the horse that ran second and third. So I, I kind of scored out on my own. And, and so, I mean, we were in really good shape. Well, then the next leg was the spinaway, Pretty City Dancer, Dead Heats with uh, a horse that, that I can't remember her name for, for uh, Todd Pletcher. And so we're still in good shape. Then the Woodward. Well, we have at this point Frosted as an A, and we have uh, Breaking Lucky and Shaman Ghost as Bs. Well, Shaman Ghost wins. He wins a photo, really, where Breaking Lucky's beaten like a neck. And then, so we at this point, we're two by three for $1.50. Well, our two are Suffused and this other horse that had won the Wea that was favored. Suffused ends up winning. And so we get alive for a dollar fifty to three horses in the nightcap, hockey school, and there was another horse that was that was uh, relatively short price. And Annals of Time, Annals of Time was coming back off a long layoff, having uh, broken his maiden the prior fall at Aqueduct, and and hockey school for Brian Lynch wires the field, and the pick five paid thirty six thousand dollars for fifty cents, and so we had it three times, 
And, you know, so we're whooping it up. I mean, we're hooting and hollering, loving it. It's, it's obviously a huge score. Little do we realize, of course, at the time that that's like the only way hockey school was ever beating Annals of Time. So, so anyway, so the next day we hit the early pick five for like 6,500. We get beaten the neck out of one that was paying 30 grand. We get, we actually had a sniff at the late one that paid, I think, 250,000 or something. Well, the next day we, we said, no, the hell is it? Let's, let's go after it. There's a pick six carryover. It's a mandatory payout anyway. Um, both pick five. So, I mean, we just hit everything. We hit the early pick five. We hit the late pick five. We hit the pick six. And long story short, I mean, we, I, we collectively turned the $14,000 that everybody put in into about $110,000 in 40 racing days. That's awesome. That was in 16. You guys have done it every year since? Yeah, it was absolutely no success. So no, we didn't, didn't do it in 19. Um, I did it in 17 and 18. I was not handicapping publicly. So you realize that when you, when you, you know, if you don't have the time to do it, I was trying to finish grad school in 17 also. So I just didn't have the time to look at the races. And, and, and I told everybody after, I really felt bad during 2018 because the problem was that, you know, once that happened, everybody wanted to get in on it. So we had like $25,000 in 2017. We had people putting in $500,000, $150, whatever, you know, and then it just becomes very unwieldy. You're trying to email like 30 people, the tickets out. And, and so I, I felt really, really bad about it. I'm just one of those people that if I, if I take people's money and I don't win, I feel bad. I probably shouldn't, but um, I kind of, I, I like, I like being more of the, my father told me, be like Hyman Roth You know, Hyman Roth always made his partner's money. So that was, that was kind of my goal with all of it. And, um, and so we didn't do it those last two years, but we're, we're going to do it in 2020. I have a feeling that now if I'm going to be, if I'm going to be looking on a daily basis, then we're going to, we're going to do it and give it a run. And, uh, it's a lot of fun. I mean, it's a lot of fun, obviously when you win, no matter what, but when you've got like six or eight people winning and everybody's rooting and everybody's, you know, having a lot of fun with it, it, it really was a blast. Yeah. It's so much fun, man. It's, it's, you know, I always tell people that like, it's, you know, it's obviously great and rewarding and you got to enjoy it because they come, they're so fleeting, but to enjoy the wins when you, when you have them, you know, personally, but then, you know, I, I find so much joy in like other people winning when they're, you know, if I have a, if I have my hand in someone else winning, I find it, it you know, look, it's not better because, you know, it's nice to be able to win, but it's great, man. I, I love it. It's so much fun. Like, and I, I know what you're saying. I hate it when I lose too. That 2015, that year, I, I had put a group together with like these, these, uh, uh, this, you know, Shran, this young kid that I coached. I coached, and when I coached uh, football, he was a senior. And then he ended up moving to Texas, to Austin and going to Texas. And so when he lived in Austin, he was like our little intern for our real estate company. And then we just, you know, he's just like our boy. You know, I was like, I wasn't that much older than him, like 10 years older than him or whatever. And he would come to the Derby with us just because, you know, he used to love just to bring him around and make him do, you know, annoying things. He's like our little, our little, uh, our little uh, rushy or whatever you want to call it. And um, he put a group together of like a bunch of college kids on for Derby because he was with us. And they, I think we started with maybe like eight grand and they hit the pick six that day and they hit a bunch of stuff and they won like 70,000. And it was awesome. They were so happy, life-changing for some of those kids. It was great. And then they put a bigger group together come Belmont and we started with 20,000. Do we even, I, we didn't even make it to the Belmont. <laughs> it was over before the Belmont even happened. I felt awful, you know, but and whatever. I mean, it, it was, it was what it was, but yeah, it's, it's not fun when that happens. It, it's fun when you have the right people, right? I mean, and, and I remember being with you on Belmont day in 2015 and, and your pick six 
for the exact same people that you had hit for on Derby Day didn't obviously didn't didn't hit. And so I was like, well, you don't owe those guys any money. So the good thing is that, that they had they had been aboard for the big win. So it's yeah, it's it's a uh, it takes a certain kind of person. You know, if you really what you liken it to and what I've told people is like, okay, so if you were in a if you were on the soccer team that was in a that was on penalties to be to put it the proper way, where would you want to go? And like I'm the kind of guy that wants to go fifth. Like I want, I want it to come down to whether I make it or not, you know. And if I yeah, don't, for, yeah, then we then we lose, right? If you need me to win and I miss, then we lose. But I'm going to take my chances that the majority of the time I'm going to find a way to win. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I'd, I'd rather have the ball in my hands. Um, now you you did good in the Breeders' Cup betting challenge in the year that I that I lost like fifty thousand in the last race. Um. What year was that? 18? Does that, yeah. that accelerate? That was accelerate, yep. Yeah, 18 was, uh, was a good year. Had a decent day on Friday. I think I, I had a really good day on Friday in 2017, which is very rare for me. Usually I'm a, I'm a Saturday, I'm a rally kind of guy. Um, but a good day in 2017, I, I liked uh, Battle of Midway. And so I hit a big double in there and, and I think started the day with like 14 or 15,000, which you know, it's all in all after one day in the Breeders' Cup betting challenge, barring the, some of the crazy years, is usually a pretty good number. And then just went right in the tank on Saturday. I mean, I don't, it, there was a lot of Breeders, obviously that was a pretty crazy Breeders' Cup, but I mean, I had like three or four opinions on horses that uh, that are still running. So 2018, you know, knew that on Friday it was going to be pretty chalky with newspaper of record and i thought game winner was a really likely juvenile winner and i thought that uh, the juvenile phillies was probably uh what's her face's race to lose the mcpeak horse that i that i, I bet and didn't restless rider restless rider yeah um so i you know i didn't think there was a whole lot was going to happen I, I, I anyway i think we'd lost maybe i don't know we were right around even on two entries so Saturday, my big my big thoughts were I wanted to play the mile heavy. Um, I wanted to play uh, analyze it. I like analyze it and expert eye. And so I mean, when I tell you that, and I'm not one of those. I'm not Tommy Massis. I wish I had the wherewithal to hit races like he does or like you do when you really when your opinion is there. I mean, I would have been like a little Massis ish if if it had come in analyze it over expert eye. But anyway, it came in a good enough result that I hit the try and, and had a little movement up the leaderboard. And then we bet a big cold exacta of the, the chalks really were enable over the, uh, the uh, Aiden O'Brien horse, Magical, I think, in the, in the turf and got into position. And then, you know, it was one of those years where I felt like the classic was wide open, wanted to play some underneath types. Gunavera was one of them. And so the funny thing about it was my card stopped working my contest card, we were sitting in millionaire's row. So I'm trying to put my bets in my card doesn't work. And I had put in all of my exact bets. And so I was, I was betting very foolishly and I, and I knew it, but I was, it was like, okay, it's go time. I just got to do it. So I was betting the exactas on one card and betting the trifectas on the other card, which was stupid because there was a very good chance that I could hit both. And, you know, instead of having one card with 50,000, I could have two cards with 25,000 that were both useless. So not the 50,000 is anything to sneeze at, but you get my point. There would have been no prize money, no, you know, right, no, right, right. Yeah, no, no NHC, whatever. So anyway, so I have to run downstairs to the contest area, which was in the Aristides Lounge. And I go and like basically assault Jim Goodman and the guy who works at Delmar, not Chris Barr, but his assistant. And I'm like, my car doesn't work. My car doesn't work. I got to put my bets in, blah, blah, blah. So I run to the window. Well, I end up missing out on like $4,000 worth of bets. 
So I'm pissed. The elevator's not working, so I have to run up the stairs. Well, I watched that Breeders' Cup Classic through the glass doors on Millionaire's Row, but standing outside of the actual restaurant. And when Gunavera got up for second, it meant that we had 400 on the exacta, 200 or 400 on the exacta, which was worth an additional like twenty eight, twenty seven or twenty eight thousand dollars, and then still having the four thousand that I hadn't bet put us at a point where we finished thirteenth. So, and it ended up that somebody didn't somebody didn't follow the rules, and they ended up getting disqualified. So we moved up to twelfth, and um, which obviously twelfth in the Breeders' Cup betting challenge is a good result because you get I want to say about ten grand in the prize. And uh, all in all, I mean, we were twenty thousand in and about fifty fifty two thousand out or so. Would you have? Would you have? With that four thousand, you were you were going to bet it the right way or the wrong way? Wouldn't have qualified me. Well, yeah, actually, would have finished sixteenth if I had bet the four thousand. It wouldn't have hit. Very fortuitous. Whew. Yeah. Yeah. No joke. Yeah. Um. Now, so you know, we, we've talked a lot about you know some of that. Uh, obviously, you're a big better, but you're also, I think, you're very astute when it comes to the industry as a whole and just really understanding the game, the history of the game. And I mean, I think people are, are probably, if you're like me, I mean, I knew you were going to be able to do it without really knowing, but just you rattling off the whole breakdown of Trinity Meadows. Um, but, and, and, you know, and also with your, your NBA background, I mean, what do you think that the industry um, needs in terms of some rehabilitation or some changes or some adjustments? And, and, and obviously, you know, both of us, you and I both, uh, are we we're better. So our, a lot of our opinions start here, but I also think that we, we try to see, you know, over the horizon enough to know that there's other things involved. But what are some of the, the points that you're passionate about in terms of, of uh, restoring, or I don't want to say restoring as if it's like gone, I don't want to be one of those guys, but um, improving, restoring, rehabilitating our game. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, a multi, multifaceted conversation. Um, you know, the, the, obviously we look at it from our perspective, different stakeholders look at it from their perspectives and we all sort of cross paths, but nobody's interests are uh, so fully intertwined that they are willing to completely work together. I mean, the one, you know, the thing that I would say on behalf of all betters is that, I mean, in a lot of ways we're sort of treated like a pariah in the game, you know, like the, the degenerates that, that just sit back and are willing to bet on, you know, that would bet on which roach could run fastest on, on the ground if you popped a couple of them down. And, you know, it was part of your conversation with Duke a few weeks ago was that most of the smartest people that you know are, are betters, horse players. And it's true. I mean, you know, I sit in the, in the jockey club at Sam Houston for simulcasts racing on, on Saturdays a lot with my dad. And, you know, there are people in there that are lawyers, financial advisors, guy that owns a, a steel business that he sold for, you know, eight figures. There's all kinds of people that have been very, very successful in life and in racing. And so we're, you know, yes, we play a game that, that is, uh, is often very frustrating. We play into an oppressive takeout. We deal with a lot of different things, but we play it because we love it. And we know that we have the skill to potentially win. And, and if we're not celebrated and we're not welcomed and we're not catered to a little bit more, then we're going to leave, you know, and that's the real problem is that betters have another option. And so, you know, I tell people in quite boldly that it's not a chicken or the egg conversation because betters are the whole farm. You know, if we leave, then there's no, there's no place for you to run your horses. 
So I have a tremendous amount of respect for the people who own horses, train horses, ride horses, breed horses, et cetera, et cetera. We all need to be in it together because we are all in it together. So, you know, what I would like to see is, is the game take itself more seriously. You know, I'd like to see us, I'd like to see there be a more concerted effort at, at getting some of the base wagers down takeout wise, you know, in, in an era where we're going to see sports betting pro- proliferate uh, is we're talking about a game that's played at a, at a blended 18% takeout. That's not appealing to people who bet sports. You know, they, they know that they can't win at that rate over, over the long haul. So, you know, I'd like to see a concerted effort for that to gradually drop over time. I know it's not going to happen overnight. You know, I think that stewarding is a big problem in this country and not, not having a uniform set of rules, um, having things adjudicated differently all over the place, not, not doing the things that you have to do on a daily basis in terms of monitoring riders and trainers and how horses are ridden, uh, when tactics change, things like that. I think that's all stuff that stewards could be more involved in and it would make for a far more competitive product. And, you know, what, what, I mean, this is something that's probably unpopular with a lot of people, but I think the pandemic sort of showed is like, man, we need less racing in this country. We've, we've got too much racing. You know, it's, it's the competitive advantage that, that Foner and Will Rogers had by running on, on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. I mean, look at how many tracks ran today. That's gone. And don't get me wrong. I'm glad that a lot of those places are open. They're undoubtedly offering jobs to people who weren't working. And that's a good thing for the overall racing ecosystem. But, you know, we have too much racing in the sense that we've got a lot of tracks with competing interests geographically that, that they don't, that they can't survive with. And that needs to be pared down. The problem is that's going to come at a heavy expense if we start losing tracks like Arlington, right. Or, you know, God forbid a place like Santa Anita, um, That'll be a big problem. That'll be a bad thing for racing. So I'd like to see us get on more stable footing, on more solid footing, because I mean it's truly a great game, and and you, you you'll you'll never find somebody that you'll meet people that share that passion with you, and they become you know the most like minded and friendliest people that you know. I mean I, I went to I went to college. I got an MBA. You know went to high school. Obviously I, I have a lot of friends from all three of those experiences. But the people I'm closest with by far are, are the people that I know from racing. Because we share that interest, we share that passion, and um, and as crazy as we are for even getting involved in it, we want it to we want it to, to thrive. So you know, I, I think that one of the things I like to do when we have this conversation on the show, and I, I think we did it with Marshall and, and probably a few other people, is is that you know I, I I like to get your your answer to the argument on the other side. I agree with you about takeout, but obviously the argument there from racetrack operators and also from horsemen's groups is that it's going to affect their purses and they can't lower the takeout because it, it, it doesn't cover the bills. It doesn't cover the taxes they have to pay. It doesn't, you know, uh, it doesn't cover the, you know, there's the host fees, there's the, this, there's the, that there's what's your answer uh, to those people with, with that? Uh, is that, if that's their response? Well, and then that's part of the problem that exists with the small number of people that represent large interests in the game. I mean, one of the things that I retweeted and and made a comment about earlier today was that there were 11 tracks running today and only one was available in race books in Vegas. And that's mainly because the the groups that negotiate signals and and signal fees paid to racetracks are, I mean, there's basically three of them that do it. Everybody else does it independently. And the problem is that those Groups represent a number of, of bettors and or entities that bet. And so they say, well, you know what? Our customers will just 
We'll bet on somebody else if that's the case. And so you you get into this bad catch twenty two as either an operator or a bet taker that there's really no way around. Some you know somebody is going to have to relent, obviously, whether it's rebated players or uh, horsemen's groups or something like that, because the goal, the common goal, should be that we're planning on if we do all of these things and we put these things in, handle is going to go up. Like this is the only option we have left to try and raise handle. Otherwise, if we think that handle is stable and, and not growing, then it's a race to the bottom. And we're not, gonna, we're not even going to make any effort to try and grow it when we know that all in all, the, the amount of money in the legal gambling market in this country is growing. Because even if it's the money that was illegally betting on sports that's now legally doing it, I mean, what I said really is, is not refutable in that respect, and that if that money is growing then it, it's, it's there to be taken. And racing missed a lot of opportunities with trying to capitalize on people that had either been disenfranchised by poker being outlawed or obviously not being able to bet on sports. And uh, we didn't bring them over to our side. And in, in many cases, we didn't do it because we bet into an oppressive takeout. We have to search far and wide for free data if we can't even get it. And um, you know we play with an inconsistent set of rules. I mean, I hate to sound like a thoroughbred idea foundation spokesman because I'm not and I'm not paid by them. But uh, they're touching on things that need to be discussed, you know, and I don't think that all of them can be put in place. But, you know, that's that's the those are the kind of conversations that need to take place. Racing is also a very stodgy game and racing has done a great job of silencing the disruptors, you know, staying as, as a country club type affair where the same people make all the decisions. And it doesn't mean that they are good at it. You know, it just means that they're put they've been thrust into those roles. And you know, we badly need things to be shaken up a little bit because I mean we're we're wasting an inordinately large amount of time on things that just don't matter. I mean, congratulations to Belinda Stronic for leading everybody to believe that if we have whip reform and LASIX reform, then suddenly this game is gonna flourish. I mean, that is just nonsense. It's just, it's, don't get me wrong. I mean, I know the public perception of whips and, and, and LASIKs and things like that might not be good, but people, it, that's not going to bring another dollar of wagering in. You know, it's not going to do anything to solve racing's larger problems. So the more we stay focused on things like that, the worse off we're going to be. And we have to get back to the things that really might make a difference soon because we don't have a whole lot of time. Yeah. I mean, the tricky part about it is, is that, is that, you know, it's kind of that chicken and the egg thing. I think that the, you know, racetracks and horsemen's group are waiting for us to bet more. And then they say they'll lower takeout. And we're saying we'll bet more if you lower takeout. And we're just all just kind of standing there looking at each other, waiting for something to happen. And my, I, I guess the, the, you know, look, and I, I respect and appreciate and believe that it all makes sense, the rebate. But I think the rebate is, is kind of a problem in, in terms of, of, of the ADWs having a lot of power with, with, with the host fee situations and, and them kind of being the middleman that is, is actually probably more of the problem to the system than it was. I mean, I think at some point, uh, racetrack operators and horsemen's groups just thought it was, you know, found money by allowing these simulcast deals to kind of be made because they just never envisioned that this game would turn into a game that's played from home 80% of the time. Um, What's your take on 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 the host fee situation and rebates? And is there any reform that we can do in that area that, that could potentially help the game? I mean, unfortunately, it's one of those where somebody's going to have to be willing to take less. And, and there's just no way around it. The hope is that whoever does decide to take less is doing so with the hope that eventually less will be more in the sense that um, either more money will be returned to betters in the form of lower takeout or 
um, we'll have more competitive racing based on perhaps larger purses. We've not really seen that come to fruition, so it almost sounds dumb to even even use as conjecture. But, um, you know, I think we were all kind of brought into that conversation with what was going on during the pandemic, where we had a track like Foner putting up these gigantic handle numbers, and then Chris Katulak, who runs Foner, came out and said, like, hey, it's awesome that we're handling $3 million a day, but guess what? We only get 3% of that. So, you know, our on-track business is is really what we use to stay afloat. And it's, it's, it's kind of ironic that, you know, here in an era where we joke about how there's nobody at the racetrack and there's, you know, everybody vets online and so on and so forth. You had a lot of these racetracks that were like, hey, we need people to be in our facility. You know, we make a lot more money when people are in our facility. And we're experiencing that now as the summer comes around with places like Lone Star and Canterbury and Mammoth and, you know, places that are known for having a good on-track business. They're trying to figure out how to get more people into their facility. So as far as rebating goes, I mean, if you – I think that most players would, would admit to you that even those that play into a you know a 9 or 10% blended rebate, they'd definitely be willing to shave some of that off if it meant lower takeout, especially because a lot of those people win regularly enough that they're going to fully experience the advantage of a lower takeout. And, um, and that, I mean, in the long run, that's going to be a lot better. Now, the problem that we ran into with the host fee conversation and horsemen's groups and this and that is that horsemen actually miss out on a lot of that handle. You know, in a lot of cases that they, they don't, they don't get any of it. And, and what they, the only thing that they end up getting is what is bet on that particular racetrack or at that particular racetrack. And that's, you know, that's not the, the money that they probably deserve. Um, but they've been painted into a corner in terms of negotiation by some of the people that carry a little bit more, more clout at the table. And that's something that's plagued racing over time. So the, the, inter- the crazy thing about it is that, I mean, this is a game that those of us that feel like we have, we're any kind of stakeholder, we're so passionate about it, right? And we, we yearn for whatever the, the, the result would be that would lead to, to some type of prominence. And especially guys like you and I that are relatively young, we think about, you know, my father tells me about going to Aqueduct and there's 45,000 people there on a Saturday. You know, there's not 45,000 people at Aqueduct in, in, in two weeks nowadays for racing. So, and that might even be generous. Um, but, you know, I want, I know that's never happening again, but I want, I want that spirit to exist again. I want that, you know, that, that bit of prominence to, 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 to reemerge. Yeah, me too. I mean, I, you know, I, look, I, this idea that we're going to somehow go back to where we were, I think is probably not realistic. Right. I mean, I don't, I don't you know, we're never going to be, we're never going to be the NFL. No. Uh, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't do some of the things that the NFL did, you know, <clears throat> excuse me. I mean, the NFL, obviously they've, they've changed their game a lot of ways and a lot of ways that probably angered traditionalists. Right. I mean, and, and I, 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 I worry that traditionalists are in power too much in this game. And so some of these things can't get changed. Right. I mean, for instance, in the NFL, um, some of the defensive pass interference rules have been increased to make it a more fun game to watch, to help with fantasy football numbers, to, to then include other people that might not be the passionate old school, traditional football fans, um, to bring more, uh, women to football by doing, uh, you know, 
more interesting things from a marketing standpoint and including people and, 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 and just all, you know, even the, 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 the safety stuff with the, with the helmet to helmet contact, it's the most annoying thing in the world. When you're watching a football game, some guy makes a phenomenal play on the ball and the other guy ducks at the last second and his helmet hits the other guy's helmet and clearly didn't even hurt him. And there's a 15 yard penalty and the guy gets a first down. It, it's just, it's awful. But I feel like the NFL, I mean, they do a lot of things wrong. Don't get me wrong, but I think they get that right in terms of changing things in the game. And I feel like there's so much stuff that we could change, but we get that same answer that I know drives you up a wall. I know it drives me up a wall. I know that, uh, I mean, pretty much everyone that I I'm, I'm friends with from a racetrack standpoint and drives them nuts. It's like, Oh, well we can't do that because like, that's just not how we've done things. Oh, well, and this is my favorite. We don't have the technology for that. Get out of here, dude. Come on. I mean, there's technology to do anything you, if you think of something you want to do right now, you Google it, there's something that can do it. You might not be able to afford it, but there's something that can do it. And, and I worry that just like our timing is ridiculous. Um, our pricing, the way that I don't mean pricing in terms of takeout, but the way, like, why do we display our prices in $2 minimums? Uh, why do we have dollar payouts on the pick five when it's 50 cents? Like, why do like just so much dumb stuff that we do that it just drives me up a wall that if someone, you know, with some innovation could just come in and fix some of those little things, we could catch up to the rest of the world. Yeah. I, to put it quite simply, I was at a workshop for the job that I had some years ago and, and it was a, uh, specifically on marketing. And the person who was leading the seminar said, if you're ever in a meeting and somebody's and, and you present an idea or someone presents an idea, or a concept or a vision of any type. And somebody, the first person that replies, if anybody does and says, we can't do that because we've never done it that way before. He said, make sure that you never listen to anything that comes out of that person's mouth ever again, because they have nothing to offer. And, and it's, it's like racing on racing. Unfortunately is full of people that take that mentality. And, you know, I mean, and not to pick on the people who did it, but look at the backlash of people that got all upset about the Belmont distance change. You know, I mean, who the hell, and look, the Belmont's not going to have a great field anyway, but you know how it would have had an even worse field if it was running a mile and a half. That's how. So it's something that needed to be adjusted and they adjusted it. And yeah, 2020, right? Hashtag 2020 for everything that's not going right, because that's how it happens. That's, that's just, that's how this year has gone. So, you know, yeah, we're too, we're too stuck in our staid little box on things. And, you know, there's going to have to be innovation. There's going to look, we're in this position in many ways because there wasn't any innovation. There wasn't any foresight. Everybody was concerned with the six inches in front of their face. And until there's more coordination and more understanding and cooperation from different groups, um, we're going to, we're going to continue to struggle the probably, and, and unfortunately, so maybe to an extent, unfairly, so the thoroughbred safety coalition is going to be one of the most interesting groups ever to be created in racing because it brings together basically every major player in the country and whomever is tasked with leading that and or making decisions. Um, they have a huge job on their hands because I mean, you're talking about Naira, Stronic, Churchill, Delmar, Breeders' Cup. I mean, everybody's in on this thing. Everybody, everybody, everybody that runs a major race in this country is in on it. 
and getting something out of that, whether it's, you know, a series of comprehensive reforms based on track maintenance or on medication or on registry, you know, anything like that, that's huge because until those big stakeholders in the game get together and continue to work on things in, 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 in concert, we're just going to keep spinning our wheels. Yeah. I mean, look, I think there's a lot of things about Roger Goodell that I think are annoying, but I I think there's something to the idea that uh, all of those powerful teams decided to give him that kind of ultimate power. And then obviously they have some voting power there uh, if they can get together majorities and so on and so forth. I I wish we had that, you know, and I, I, and I'm sure that whoever they picked, I'd probably wouldn't like the person. Right. I mean, I don't, but but I, I, but just something more centralized instead of this like kind of ragtag. I feel like it's like a ragtag operation that that handles billions of dollars, and it's just weird, you know. But look, and I'm not, and, and don't get me wrong, dude, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, when we get done here, I'm gonna probably look at, you know, I'm gonna start looking at Belmont for this weekend because I'm so excited, and I'm not, we're not doom and gloom types. I just think that there is this is a game that I love and there's certain things that I would like to get changed because I want it to be here for a long time. I, I, you know, I, um, I have, like you said, I mean, I, I mean, some of my closest friends are at the racetrack and, and I, you know, things that kind of get me going are at the racetrack. And so I, I just don't want to see it. I don't want to see it go away. And I, I, you know, I, I, you know, we're not baseball, we're not basketball, hockey or football, but damn it, we should be right there. And phew, who knows? I mean, we should be able to take over baseball as bad as baseball is, but <laughs> well, especially as of today. I mean, when it's looking like they have, just have no idea what they're doing in terms of even having a season. But yeah, I mean, it's that's that's what it that's what it boils down to, unfortunately. And and you know, I mean, we've we've all we've all brought people into the mix in terms of racing, and we want to see them enjoy it. We want to see them them like it. And the other thing that I think, and, and you know, there people out there that disagree with it, but I mean, as far as a game of skill goes. I think racing has a huge opportunity with millennials. And I think millennials are far more likely to be interested in a game of skill where, you know, they can, they can develop ideas and outthink and, you know, do those kind of things. Whereas uh, a lot of other, other groups of, of people in terms of demographics maybe aren't as in on it. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, th- I want to see us capitalize on that. Obviously we would need to, to offer more incentives of lower price points, you know, something like that, but something at least yeah. to whet their appetite and maybe get them involved. Yeah. And, you know, the opportunity to model, I think is great too. You know, an idea, I don't think we ever talked about this before. And then there's a couple of things I want to talk about before we go. Um, you know, fractional wagering, um, you know, it, what in your brain, what's the reason why the pick five has to be 50 cents? Like, why couldn't we allow, I mean, obviously it would be a computer, a computer betting nightmare. They would be able to be as efficient as possible. And I, I, I don't know if that would actually be good to go that low, but why can't you bet uh, 10 cent tries and, 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 you know, why can't you bet a, uh, if there's a $2 pick six, why can't you make the decision to bet 20 cents or 40 cents or 60 cents or 10 cents or whatever it might be? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a decent argument. Uh, I, I certainly, I certainly get it. Um, I think we've definitely gone, we've definitely maxed out the direction we've gone, which is the fractions getting too small. Um, we don't need to go, I think any, anywhere from where we are now, obviously the, the, these preponderance of jackpot bets that we have at a a 20% price point. Um, We don't need to go any lower than that. And I think any tracks that have tried lower denomination uh, intra race bets, like I know Rotama was doing 10 cent trifectas for a while. There's just no liquidity in those pools. I mean, there's just, there's nobody bets it. So, 
Yeah, I mean, I think, and I know you and I have talked about it in the past. I, I think there's a, a real, there's a market for a higher minimum uh, multi-race bet. I think somebody out there is going to going to need to try it, and and I think maybe uh, you know I I liked the idea when Naira went to the Empire Six of potentially offering a two dollar pick six on the same card and maybe just running it on races three through eight um, or something like that. You know, in 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 the, the old old days, that's when the pick six was offered. And the problem is you can't tote related you can't have two of the same wagers either overlapping or on the same card whatever so you'd have to you know you'd have to put it in a different pool or something which is difficult and the handle doesn't generate the same way but yeah we've we've definitely maxed out that direction and i think the goal was that we get more people into the pool at a lower minimum but you know i think the i think canterbury is proving it lone stars proving it indiana grand will probably prove it the stronic five proves it that if you have a, a low takeout um even if any of those places had the dollar minimum that the stronic five has the handle would still be very good so I, I think that we need to see need to see some of those come up a little bit because you know you want to and, and rick hammerley did a great job talking about this with you you want to still have that opportunity for a big score you know, even though chasing it and now comes in the the only way you can get it now is chasing a rain, the rainbow, um, which is idiotic. So we need something that's a little bit more regular, a little bit people are a little bit more capable of getting it. All right, so let's 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 end uh, on two topics, and and one of them is just an interesting one, and then we'll end on a high note. Uh, you're on the buyer speed figure team. How, you know, obviously you, you mentioned how getting those phone calls from Andy Byers is. Uh, is uh is, is very exciting how, how did all of that happen it, it, it worked out that uh saratoga in 20 i think it was 15 was it 14 or 15 um andy serling invited me to dinner i believe travis was with me so it had to be 14 when he was working at monmouth and he was in during the week and andy buyer happened to be in and so we um we ended up going to dinner and we ate it at the place that's gone now mastro's and, you know, just listen to Andy Byer tell stories about them, you know, being in Florida for the winter and making money betting Gulfstream and how, what an advantage he had when the figures weren't published and so on and so forth. And so it ended up that a couple of months later, Andy, little Andy called me and said, um, would you like to potentially work for Andy? And so I said, yeah, but I mean, I have no qualifications whatsoever. And he's like, don't worry about it. He'll take care of it. So I had a conversation with, with Andy Byer the next day, and I happened to be going to South Florida for work. And he said, go down and meet Mark Hopkins, who has is, is been Andy's partner in, uh, in the business since they started. And so I met with Mark and we discussed speed figures and racing. And he got a little bit of history from me on on being in the game and I got a little bit of history from him. And so we agreed that I would start in the, uh, the following winter, basically this was December of 15. And so I started at with Mahoning Valley in January of 16. And that year I did all of the Ohio tracks. I did, uh, a lot of the Nebraska tracks. I want to say the, probably the biggest racetrack I made figures for was Thistledown until unless you want to say Volterra or Mahoning Valley are bigger than Thistledown, but until the fall when Andy added Golden Gate. So I started making Golden Gate figures. I, I had a long conversation with him about synthetics and making figures for that and how difficult it is. And so uh, Finger Lakes, I guess, was the was one place I had right from the beginning. So I had Finger Lakes and 
And the first year, I mean, they saddled me with some good ones. Wyoming Downs, uh, Grants Pass. I, I did I did a little bit of everything. So it, it worked out that I got I got a few upgrades along the way. And now I make the figures for the Texas Tracks and Golden Gate, Finger Lakes, Hawthorne, and uh, just a, a series of other ones. But it's been it's been a great it's been a ton of fun. It's been a great exercise in in learning about it and really learning the nuance of speed figures. And I've learned a great deal from Andy and Mark Hopkins, Randy Moss, and uh, and I discuss really figure making a lot with Craig Milkowski from Timeform US, whose product is outstanding. And of course, we're all under the same umbrella now, so no harm in saying that. But um, he obviously offers up a more of a pace adjusted figure, whereas ours is based on final time. So, you know, it's a speed figures are are worth what you put into them as a handicapper. And I don't make speed figures. Nobody who makes buyers or nobody who makes Timeform US figures or thoroughgraphs or anything like that is doing it because we think you're going to blindly bet our best figures. We want you to take them and use them for to your advantage. You know, use them how you see fit. If, if they work with what you're trying to do, then work with it. And if they work in a negative way, then do that. You know, on the show the other day, actually, Andy Serling mentioned, and I've never thought about this before, and I've never talked to Paul or Craig or yourself about it. So I wanted to do it now. He had mentioned that he thought that six and a half was a more difficult uh, distance for a lot of places to make figures. Is that something you've realized or what distance is kind of the trickiest distance to, uh, to make figures? Probably the trickiest distance that I make figures for are the seven eighths races at Sam Houston and Lone Star. And I think that a lot of that has to do with they, they start at a, at a, a part of the racetrack that they just don't run over very much. So I think there's no matter what they do maintenance wise, I think there's just a little, there, there's a little difference and there might, it might just be a three point difference. There might be days where it's a six point difference um, of them just racing over dirt that might not really play the exact same way speed wise. Um, that's my main, main, that's really one of the main things I notice. you know, obviously weather has a factor distances sometimes can have more of a factor. Like for example, there was a period of time where golden gate had an appreciably lower run up at five and a half furlongs and they did it six because of where the, the gate was relative to the, the entry to the backstretch. And so that kind of threw off the times, which, I mean, that's a whole additional conversation we could have, right, about making some things uniform in terms of, of run-up, timing, so on and so forth. It's kind of, run-up's kind of silly. But, um, yeah, those, those are the things you notice. It's, I mean, Saratoga's been a tough place, I think, to make six and a half furlong figures because there's a giant run-up. So, obviously, the first quarter is, is always very, very quick. And you explain to people that when they go 21 and three to the opening quarter at six and a half, it's actually not that fast, um, even though it looks like it's insanely fast. So those are the things I think that if you make figures over a period of time, you start to notice quite a bit more. And um, as a figure maker, you keep that in mind when you're when you're making the figures. And if you bet on that racetrack regularly, I think you you try and pick up on it as quickly as you can, too. All right. Now to the fun part. And we'll wrap it up after this. I'm just going to ask you about some your favorite horses, things like that. Um, favorite three horses uh, in the last – in the 2000s. In the 2000s, favorite three horses. Ghost Zapper, uh, definitely. And, I mean, I spoke glowingly before about Curlin. I mean, he's, was he, he wasn't one of the best, but he definitely was one of my favorites. And – you know, he did more. I, I mean, I'm one of those guys that likes horses that run against the grain and and do things the hard way. And 
and so on and so forth. So like I was a big Congaree fan. I thought Congaree was a horse that ran a lot of, of races that were better than they look on paper and, uh, and, and ran hard. And I mean, he's owned by Bob McNair, who owns the Houston Texans, obviously. And so, and John Adger, who was the John of Bob and John was a regular at Sam Houston. And, um, yeah, he was one of them. I guess I'd go with those three. I mean, you know, I, I've I've liked some horses more than others. I mean, I'm leaving out probably who I, I did. And everybody will perceive this the wrong way because I'm not an anti-Zenyatta person, but I really did love Blaine. Like, I really was a Blaine fan. And that was because we were – I would go to the Super Derby every year when Travis worked at Louisiana Downs, and Blaine came and ran second to Regal Ransom. And, I mean, I remember even joking with Richard Migliori afterwards that, like, how much better Blaine was going to be than Blaine – or Blaine was going to be than Regal Ransom as four-year-olds. Migliori had ridden, had ridden Regal Ransom. So, you know, he was a horse that I really liked, and then everybody's like, ah, you liked him because he beat Zenyatta. You know, it's like, no, that's not really what it boiled down to. I had a lot of appreciation for Zenyatta. You know, I, 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 I really enjoyed watching her run. You know, I wish they had been a little more ambitious, but I enjoyed it. It was a, it was a hell of a lot of fun. Those were, a, those were a good couple of years for racing when she and Rachel were both good. A couple of uh, horses that stand out as underrated to you. Underrated. Boy, that's, that's a good one. There are... Um, Who's an underrated horse? Well, I guess I, I kind of answered that in the first one. Congaree was an underrated horse. Medallia Doro, in some respects, was an underrated horse. He was uh, was a horse that I think ran some some winning races when uh, he when he ended up losing. And you know, we're the types of handicappers, obviously, that we want to we want to figure out who ran the best race based on how it was run, not so much who won. You know, I'm I'm not a results oriented handicapper. I'm a I'm a race dynamics oriented handicapper. So. Yeah, him and and um, underrated. I'm trying to think through the years who was underrated. You know, there was a long period of time where I felt like Palace Malice was very underrated, and I think then the you know the way his career sort of ended prior to the Whitney in 2013, I think Palace Malice had a very underrated career. Um, in in that you know here was a horse that won the the Belmont Stakes, the Met Mile, and I mean I was at Fairgrounds the day he won the New Orleans Handicap, and he just ripped that field apart. He ran a really, really good race to win, um, and just was a you know was one of those horses that just I mean on on his day prior to, to to that Whitney where his career started to kind of slide the wrong direction he was very very good so he was a little underrated and who else was underrated twenty sixteen is really not anybody I'm trying to think maybe there's a turf horse that was underrated we've had a we've had a few that were really good Wise Dan was underrated even as good as he is. Um, mm-hmm. Teppen was underrated, I think. Also, she was very, very good, but she also didn't. The you know, horses that she beat maybe weren't that good. I don't know, I'm surprised that I'm drawing such a blank for it. You know, he was underrated, and he was a really good horse. He just didn't win a big race. I think Gio Ponti was underrated. I think a lot of people will argue with me that he didn't win enough big races to be considered that. But he was a horse that was pretty effective from a mile to a mile and a half. Um, you know, he he's the kind of horse that makes you really appreciate the campaign that Bricks and Mortar had last year winning from a mile and an eighth to a mile and a half and, and doing so with just, you know, total disregard for everything that worked against him because uh, he was just really good. And I think Gio Ponti was really good. It's, it's amazing. Christophe Clement has never won a Breeders' Cup race. And as close as Gio Ponti came a couple of times, probably should have won as a two-year-old and he'd be, hell, he ran a winning race to Zenyatta in 09 as well. All right. Your, um, the best performance you ever saw live. The one that that probably moved me 
in terms of like of how how I felt watching it was Rachel winning the Haskell. Um, we had had a long trip that week, Pat and Joe and I up to Saratoga for opening day, and uh, it was a great opening day. Um, ironically, Get Stormy won. Bro, I think he won a one other than that day on the undercard, and obviously he went on to be a, a Grade One winner and sired Got Stormy. Um, and so we ended that week. We, we, we were there for the Jim Dandy and the Diana the day before. Drove down to Monmouth the next day. Obviously just got dumped on with rain. And, and she was – I remember watching them come off the turn and her just completely bust away from that field. And it was as, it was as moved, I think, as I've been watching a horse race in my entire life. So that was probably the one I enjoyed most. You know, there's always going to be something special about both American Pharaoh and Justifies Belmont's. It was uh, – they were both sensational. Ghost Zappers Classic was sensational. It, those are those are just racing moments you never forget, and uh, and they were all just. I mean, they were tremendous. I, I think that, I think that maybe if I had been there, yeah. I mean, I, I think there hasn't been a Breeders' Cup performance. I think that I've been to a lot of Breeders' Cups, but there hasn't been a performance where I was like, wow. I mean, you know, since Ghost Zappers Classic, I was like, wow. I'm really glad that I got to see that live. But um, you know, especially now that they're checkered a little bit with however you wagered on them. So I, I, don't, I try not to let that factor in. But I would say the one that I did, it, 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 it really incited the strongest feelings in me was Rachel's Haskell. Now I got two more. Um, the, the best horse that never really got to show it, like the, you know, like the McLean's music. Or like, I, mean, I, I didn't think you were going to get that, give that one. So I'm not giving it. A, I don't think I stole that one from you. But just like the, the most talented horse that, for whatever reason, never really got to kind of go on and do some of the things that you thought that horse could have done. I mean, he predates a lot of the time when I followed racing that closely. But I mean, of what I know of Unbridled Song, he seems like that type. He looked like a horse that could be anything. And he just seemed to have a really huge amount of of, of health issues. Um, Liam's map is kind of a horse that I feel like didn't really get to show all that he could have been. He's a very, very good horse. And, and, and you know, Whitney would tell you that. And, and going out in style like he did winning the Dirt Mile was one thing, but you know, we never really saw the best of him. And I think he could have been something very special. I think it actually could be also be said about cross traffic. He was a really, really good horse too. Very, very fast and uh, ran a tremendous race in the Met Mile, came back and won the Whitney and um, just a really, really good horse. So I guess one of those, um, you know, a lot of the horses that I've, I've always been kind of the one that rooted for the you know, the, like I said, the underdog types that, that didn't get to prove themselves maybe all that much, but those are ones that I can think of off the top of my head. If you could only watch one race in a calendar year live, what race would it be? I guess I shouldn't say the Woody Stevens, right? <laughs> it's not because I, just <laughs> on it. I don't want to watch it. Um, okay. Non-derby. Yeah. Well, yeah. Non-derby. Uh, I think I know. I, I think I know your answer, but I, I, I'm just see if I get it. You know, it's it's funny. It doesn't always have the best field. It it in a non triple crown year, it means very little. I love the Belmont Stakes. I really, I really love love the Belmont Stakes. Love the starting in front of the grandstand, the excitement, New York, New York, all of it. I I I would I would go to the Belmont if I had any opportunity. Um, I just love being there, and and I love Belmont Park and. And, and all that jazz. So probably that more so than the Travers, but um, those are, it would be, it would be one of, of those two probably. 
Yeah, well, because we don't watch the Travers live. We're not, I mean, we watch it live, but we're not. We don't watch it in person. Right. Well, it's like I mean, you know, God bless Saratoga, and I tell people all the time, it's it's like it's the greatest place in the world racing wise. It's also the worst place in the world to watch a live horse race. I mean, it, yeah, and unless, it, unless you not, sneak to the roof, right? Exactly that, or you sneak to the roof and almost and get caught like we did. But um, I've not been since the 1863 was put up. I did not make it there last year. I was awaiting the arrival of my daughter. Um, and so I, I, I don't, I mean, I, I imagine that's a good viewing experience. I know it's also a little bit past the wire, so you really don't get that good vantage point, but you know, Saratoga is the most amazing racetrack in the world with, with obstructed sight lines and uncomfortable grandstand seats and, you know, the absolute worst racetrack restaurant in the country, uh, the turf terrace where the, the seats are right on top of each other and the food's overpriced, but it's great. You know, it's great. It's not you. You when you sit there, you're like, man, I'm in the turf terrace in Saratoga. Why not? I thought for sure you were going to say the Met Mile, but I, close enough. I was close yeah, enough. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess if I say the Belmont, it's part of a package deal, right? So I get it. I get it in. Right. But I do love the Met Mile, and the Met Mile has been. You know, I was very much on the yes, moving the Met Mile to Belmont Day is great bandwagon. I know people act like their their Memorial Day has been ruined, um, but let's let's give it up for our New York bred warriors that always go to battle on on Memorial Day. Uh, in, in New York Showcase Day. So, no, I think the Met on Belmont Day is great. Uh, last year's Met was just phenomenal. And, I mean, think about it. Since the since it got moved to to Belmont Day, I mean, Palace Miles beat Golden Sense in 2014. Golden Sense was the best miler in, in the country to two years prior to that. Honor Code beat a star-studded field in 15, beat Byron, Tonalist, Private Zone. It was all the best horses around. Frosted had that insane win in 16, um, more spirit won it in 17 and just, just blasted sharp Azteca, who was obviously who later won the cigar mile by a pole. And, uh, gosh, 2018 was mind your biscuits in Jersey town. Those were two of the, the more talented horses. And last year, I mean, some of the best horses in training were in that race. I mean, Matoli and McKinsey were, if they weren't the two, two of the three or four best older horses in the country throughout last year. So, and I mean, it even looks like it's going to be a very good race this year. If we see, Bacoma and McKinsey and Code of Honor all go postward. It's it's just the it's a cool race and it's one of those where people who breed horses and buy horses and things like that they love the Met Mile. Those of us who just bet on horses love it as well. All right, and the last one. This is one I don't think you're going to struggle with. Is uh, give me a couple of the most overrated horses that make your teeth itch when people get excited about them. <laughs> Songbird was overrated. She was overrated. You beat a bunch of bad horses over time. She's a good horse, and I try not to hate on horses after their careers, especially. But um, I mean, it was. I tell people all the time, uh, my whole Zenyatta thing is that I just wish she had lost her first or second race. And I say that because they would have probably. Now, John Churups isn't exactly Mark Cassie when it comes to, to campaigning horses ambitiously. He probably wouldn't have ever done it, but he probably would have been a little bit looser in terms of what kind of races he would have run her in if she wasn't undefeated. And so it, so much of it became about keeping her undefeated than racing her. And I just wish she had been raced a little bit more. I think she was a, a, you know, an all-time great talent and a horse that um, that was really had a tremendous amount of ability. I mean, look, this is going to be an unpopular answer. American Pharaoh is a very, under, a very overrated horse. So is Justify in that sense because they won something that had been so elusive, but they did it because they both took advantage of uh, of very good running styles relative to the horses that they ran against. Justify probably more so than American Pharaoh, 
but you know he won a lot of races where things went very well for him he's a speed horse so he was able to do a lot of that himself but you know i mean in 2015 american pharaoh had one race where a horse went eyeball to eyeball with him early and he lost to keen ice right so it happens it's okay it's okay to lose everybody is so results oriented nowadays they get so stuck on on exactly where a horse finished and who they beat what race did they run and so on and so forth it's okay to lose the good horses over time have lost a lot of races secretary lost his first race after the, the belmont so it's okay for that to happen but um those would probably be i mean they're unpopular nobody's gonna like me everybody's gonna hate mail you well nobody's getting more hate mail than you right now so i mean i'm not that worried but so i mean everybody's gonna be like ah oh, you know it's an east coast bias blah 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 he doesn't like Zenyatta. So, there have been a lot of east overrated horses on the east coast too but songbird did she did she did lay it down it's funny like songbird and Zenyatta, both of those horses that you mentioned they earned the most respect for me in the races that they lost. Absolutely. When Songbird lost the Beholder and when Zenyatta lost the Blame. Those are, t- like, those are arguably two of their best races. Well, I'll tell you what. Songbird was a phenomenal two-year-old. She, her, two-year-old her two-year-old season. And we were, we were at Del Mar when she debuted. We were. I forgot about broke, that on the sixth floor. Yeah, she broke from the rail and she won by a pole. And then, I mean, I, I'm trying to, this is off the top of my head. I think she won the debutante and whatever race was formerly known as the Oak Leaf. And then, you know, that, that juvenile Phillies was not, wasn't loaded by any means, but it wasn't a bad field. And she just, she was like a 99 figure, which, you know, for a late season two-year-old is really unheard of. So she was a really, really good two-year-old. And look, she won, she won all the races that mattered as a three-year-old. So she was, she was very, very talented. I kind of, I beat up on her unnecessarily because she just got, I thought she was a little bit more, a little bit more sizzled and steak, but um, you know, she, even in defeat, you're right. She ran a couple of, of really, really good races. And, and I was standing at the eighth pole of that uh, during the 2016 Breeders' Cup distaff. Of course, I'm screaming my lungs out for forever unbridled, but I was just a year too early. But um, it was a great race. Really a phenomenal horse race. Boss man, where are you going to watch the Belmont this weekend? I'm going to watch it at home with, uh, with my dad. And, and I'll have my little, little one and my wife here to make sure that we commemorate the event. And we'll probably play New York, New York by Frank Sinatra when they come on the track just to show respect. It's gonna be it's gonna be fun. I think we're on. I think we're we we have to get off at three because NBC starts. So we're on until three, and then we go off for, for from three to six, and then we come back for like the you know like the walkout races. We're back for the walkout races, which I know is a boss special. I remember there's a picture of us somewhere I found um, of us when social inclusion was running after one of the races at Belmont and it was, uh, the sun was setting and there was a picture of us somewhere. I, I, I don't know where I, I saw it last, but there was, there was a, a Godolphin horse that, that Kira McLaughlin ran at a mile. No, he ran at like six or seven furlongs and he ended up coming back and winning a big race in one of the get out races it, it, after Belmont. But I remember I took a, Oh, in 16, I took a horrible DQ on a horse that Chad ended up using as a rabbit for flincher. And, and it was, uh, what's our, our man that always dresses very nicely that plays in contest, Pete Dressens, what had, had needed, needed this Chad horse that won, you know, with absolutely committed no foul for like a five figure score. I thought Belmont was done. You know, I thought the place was just going to go. I thought there wasn't going to be anything left. So he was very upset, justifiably. But yeah, you get a couple, you get a couple good opportunities. We left last year. Last year, the Brooklyn was the get out race, was the last race. And we were in Pat's car watching it. 
uh, Marshall was sending it in because there's no way a <laughs> furlong dirt race was going to be running America without Marshall's money in the pool. <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. Well, boss man, you, uh, you, there's a, there's a handful of guests. I, I feel like I'm going to have them on here once and, and I feel like I got to get everything out of them, but I, I, um, I envision having you on here a couple of times. So I appreciate you taking the time and, and, uh, I appreciate your friendship as well. Absolutely. Likewise. And enjoyed it. And I'll happy to happily come back. I'm sure I haven't offended everybody out there that I could. So you got to give me another chance. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the boss man right there. Uh, I tell you what, this dude, uh, he's, <laughs> I'm always so impressed by his ability to recall. Um, I thought about doing that random quiz where I just say like the winner of the 98 Travers and he, he just wouldn't, he would nail it. But, uh, um, I think my intro was long. If I don't, I think I remember it was long. So I'll be, I'll be quick here. Um, I want to thank the boss man for, for taking the time. You know, he's got a, he's got a wife and kid there, a young one, the little boss set. And so I, you know, I appreciate him taking the time to, uh, to talk with us a little bit and to, uh, share some of his stories. Um, Nick is uh, one of the good guys in this game. If you ever have a chance to, uh, to, to, to chop it up with Nick, um, you know, make sure you do that. And look, I, Nick's got, Nick can be a little crusty on Twitter. Sometimes he's got a, he's got, uh, he's got, uh, some, some horse player in him now when, when things, uh, <laughs> things don't go his way, you can be a little, can be a little salty, but I can, I can assure you that, uh, Nick's a, a big old teddy bear inside. So, uh, and, and, and one that really loves this game and has an extreme knowledge of the game is, is I think that the last couple hours probably, probably illustrated. Um, like I said, thank you guys for uh, for ten. This is ten. This is ten episodes, and uh, and we're gonna keep rolling, and it's, it should continue to grow. I'm I'm looking forward to adding some video. Um, it's at Saratoga. I'm looking forward to adding some video. I've, I've already kind of teased some of the people I'm looking forward to having. I guess how that'll work is I'll just do the video, and we'll still release it audio version like this. But then I'll we'll also put it like on our YouTube channel where there'll be a video vibe to it, and I'll do it just like kind of like Joe Rogan did, where there's excuse me, one camera going one way, another camera going the other way and whoop, there it is. So we'll see how that goes. Um, yeah. Uh, what else? What else is going on? Twitter was on fire tonight. Uh, apparently people don't like getting blocked, but check it out. You say something stupid. I'm a block. you. I, I don't trust myself to have access to your stupidity. <laughs> so I just have to block you. And so I found this GIF. I'm going to just start using it. I'm going to block people GIF. Block people GIF. So if you're interested in getting blocked, say something stupid. Um, I want to thank Drew Coatney, our business manager. Thanks for taking care of us, Drew. Um, who else? Naomi, talk racing to me. Spencer L for uh, reminding me to turn in my picks for that little league he's got me in that I keep losing in. And, uh, and also for Redboard Rewind, I want to thank Matty Ice for uh, the Matt Bernier show. What else we got going on? Am I forgetting something? Uh, all of our partners, uh, I'm not going to name them because I'll forget, but all of our partners who, uh, who uh, are working with us, we appreciate you guys. And then I guess, um, I guess I got to thank PTF. That was a good story, huh? About PTF acting obnoxious at Angel Cordero's house during the fight, <laughs> cheering on his one to 20 shot. <laughs> Oh, dang. Well, you can't blame the guy. We had a pick six that day. He was very excited. So he, uh, very excited. Oh, the fire alarm's going off. That's kind of annoying. 
Well, I'm back. <laughs> uh, I, I I feel stupid. That's kind of annoying. Uh, I thought it was like a false alarm. I've I've been out there for like an hour and a half. Um, somebody upstairs to the left. The they had a they, something happened. I don't know, like a little fire up there, and uh, water and smoke and the people below them stuff got all jacked up. So I guess uh, I guess I feel silly saying that was annoying for me. It was probably pretty annoying for them. Uh, it's a good way to end this thing, right? Um, damn, here, here I am worried about things that don't matter. I feel fortunate that my house is not uh, soaking wet and nothing caught on fire. So thankful for that. I'm um, glad you guys are safe. We'll see you guys next week. I need to know everything. Who in the what and the where I need everything. Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me. I'm curious, George. I hop in the Porsche with five and a horse. I'm ready for war. I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost. I need to know everything. Now you be surprised at the info you get is by letting them talk, so I'm letting them talk. Gotta keep quiet, maneuver in signs to let them and talk up their body. Another one.